Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of the recently released A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W.blogspot.com. And procure a copy of the book and my other work works at the farm's official store, which is at the farmpodcast.store. That is the farmpodcast, all one word, dot store. Also, please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive gifts and content. All right, guys. After over half a year in the making, we are finally reaching the end of the Farm's World Anti-Communist League series. It's been one long, strange trip, and this has been labor of love for everyone involved. And this is the grand finale. I have the entire menagerie with me today. There's my research partner, the great Keith Allen Dennis. Keith, thank you so much for dropping by for the ending, sir. Thank you, Recluse. It's final exam day. That's awesome. Absolutely, sir. Next up is our Ukrainian specialist, the great Moss Robinson. Moss, thank you so much for all the help you've done, most especially uh, the work that you have done editing for us. A big shout out for that. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun uh, being a part of this. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, also, we have got the farm's resident ex-cultist, Mr. Don Diligent. Don, thank you so much for your involvement and especially all of the firsthand insights that you have shared with us on the Unification Church over the course of this series. Well, thank you for that, Recluse. Uh, hopefully we can make our finale here a memorable one. Let's give it a, let's give it a go, as they say. I don't think we are uh, going to have any problems with that, considering the material we are going to be covering today. And last but not least, John Brisson of We've Read the Documents. John, it's always a pleasure, and I'm especially glad you could make it here for today's show and the ending. Yes, definitely uh, honored to be um, around such fine company and researchers, and thank you for uh, having me back here on the farm. Absolutely, sir. Okay, guys, so, Wackle, for those of you unaware, the World Anti-Communist League was effectively the visible personification of the fascist international during its heyday. It was a motley crew consisting of numerous former Nazis and former fascist collaborators, and various international drugs and arms traffickers, assorted third world dictators and quote-unquote freedom fighters, numerous former military and Mumus military and intelligence officers from the world over, and the inevitable cults and secret societies. It was a strange crew and a terrible one, to be sure. Up to this point, we've explored the origins of Wackle, its links to the infamous Golden Lily Slush Fund, and the international drug trade. Its involvement in Operation Condor and various pacification programs employed in Latin America during the 1970s. But now, we have reached the 1980s, which was the absolute pinnacle of Wackle. So, we'll start off uh, to get we'll start off with getting up to speed on the developments during the early part of that strange time that we know as the 1980s. Now, Don, 
Over the course of our Wackle series, we've talked about the Golden Lily Fund from time to time. You've speculated on how the gold was used to fund the Moonies and Wackle. Do you still see signs in this during the 1980s that the Slush Fund was still around then? You know, that's a great question. Actually, thinking back to our last podcast, Keith talked briefly about the Singlob expedition, I guess we'll call it, which was a privately sponsored group that went to the Philippines looking to dig up some remains of what gold was still clearly out there uh, for the having. But that story doesn't really serve me well in this podcast since that was gold that was yet to be found. But I do think it's noteworthy that the Moon Organization apparently dropped a few dollars on Singlob's effort. In, in fact, Keith had mentioned the last time that CAUSA, the Mooney anti-communist group, they were present uh, in the Philippines while Siglob was there. So the Moon funding of Siglob's effort could have come directly from Bohi Pak, uh, just to make a point here. Now, as far as what was accessible uh, in the 1980s, in other words, what Golden Lily resources were still available at that time. I want to bring up Nobusuke Kishi again, someone who I've mentioned in previous podcasts. <clears throat> it's my understanding that Kishi <clears throat> came to possess the Marcotte Fund or M Fund, which was part of the Golden Lily. Kishi got a hold of that from Richard Nixon right at the time that the Moon Organization was just starting to show its influence in Japan. Now, if we fast forward to the mid 19 uh, Kishi now in the 80s, he's a member of Moon's International Security Council, which I talked about earlier. So the question has to be asked, does Kishi still have control over a certain amount of the Golden Lily, whether it's M Fund or otherwise? Because if so, he very well could have been channeling some of those funds through the ISC to support Iran-Contra. And then, of course, there's the distinct possibility there's a direct link between the Golden Lily and Wackle, possibly being facilitated by Ryuichi Sasakawa. Now, going back to something I mentioned in our last Wackle show, there's an FBI document that says the Moon Organization was responsible for 85% of Wackle's funding, which, honestly speaking, I, I still have a hard time uh, believing that. But but if the Golden Lily is a part of Moon's largesse, shall we say, the Moonies could have simply been a conduit for the Golden Lily. So who knows then what the reality is? I mean, if Siglob, as head of Wackle during Iran-Contra, had access to that Japanese gold, etc., it might actually explain a few things, if you catch my drift. Now, 
what else uh, can I bring up here? Well, um, I, I think I should address the golden lily from a completely different angle. There's an interesting thread I've compiled where we can bring Le Cercle into the conversation here. Uh, someone I've talked about before uh, in our podcast is Robert B. Anderson. Anderson was the guy who set up the 176 bank accounts at the end of World War II for the distribution of the Black Eagle Trust, which is the combination or aggregate, say, of what the Nazis and the Imperialist Japanese had plundered during the war. Oh, you know, I just thought of something. Remember last podcast where I talked about Daniel Graham's Nazi arms buddy, Ernst Werner Glatt? Can you guys remember the name of his ranch? I'll just say it. It was it was called Black Eagle. So Black Eagle Trust. And Black Eagle Ranch. Gee, what a coincidence. Or is it? Well, even without the coincidence, what is just plain fact fact is that Glatz Swiss bank account was in the exact same bank where Barbara Studley of Geomilitech had her bank account and Siglob of Wackel was working with Barbara Studley's Geomilitech. So that definitely gives us something to think about, coincidence or not, as far as the Golden Lily is concerned. Now, getting back to Robert B. Anderson, by 1983, he was heading up the Mooney Front, the Global Economic Action Institute. Boy, I just love that name. The only word missing is political. Let me give it a try. The Global Political Economic Action Institute. Oh, yeah, that's much better. I'm sorry. Mm. Let me let me get more serious here. I just have to wonder if Anderson, who's so closely tied to the Golden Lily, is there any way that we can connect the Golden Lily to Iran-Contra through the Moonies themselves? Now, before I speculate on that, one other thing I think we need to review is that Julian Amory, who headed up the sister branch of the Global Economic Action Institute in Britain, he became head of Le Cercle in 1985, which is right in our timeline here. So that means we have a Mooney Le Cercle connection with a potential golden lily element to it. And when I looked up all the participants in this institute, I found some very familiar names. The Trilateral Commission, for one. Then there's the Third Reich-influenced Bank for International Settlements. And then there's the International Monetary Fund. And here comes a good one. The Jean Monnet Foundation. That's a direct Le Cercle link right there. Monet being a very early member of Le Cercle. So after seeing all these names, it just made me think that much more that the Golden Lily most likely is being utilized by this Mooney Front Group 
in fact, in this the in this this the classified document, excuse me, this the classified document I looked at, an item for discussion at one of these conferences, one of these economic institute conferences, was on the topic of gold. I mean, you can't get much closer to the golden lily than that, can you? But I've got some more theorizing here. Let's go back to Iran-Contra, the Iran-Contra depositions in particular that I referenced the last time we talked. Another person I found in those depositions was a key U.S. Le Cercle agent, Walter Raymond. He was connected to Brian Crozier, another Le Cercle guy, and Crozier's the guy that helped get Mooney ally Julian Amory into the leadership role for Le Cercle. So as I went through Walter Raymond's deposition and then did some further research on Crozier, I found out that, and I think I discovered this a few years ago, but it didn't really hit me until recently. So it appears Crozier set up a fund to support the Contras that might connect over to Amory and then by extension over to the Mooney Economic Front. And this fund of Crozier's was called the International Freedom Fund Establishment. And, you know, even though most of that money, the research shows that most of that money went to support NATO-related interests, you know, that's what I found, the research also shows that part of Crozier's fund definitely went to the Contras and the Heritage Foundation. That's where this money originated from. In other words, there was this circuitous route the money traveled to get to the Contras. The Heritage Foundation over the Atlantic to Crozier and then making its way back across the Atlantic down to Latin America somehow. And the money transfer started as early as 1982. Now, when I hear Heritage Foundation... Uh, Don, like just to add into that for a second, too, um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there was a great work called um, In the Public Trust by uh, Gerald James, uh, who was an official at the Astra Fireworks Company, which was eventually turned into an arms manufacturer during the 1980s in um, Thatcher's UK. And effectively, this became this company became involved in supplying um, arms to I think it was eventually Iraq um, as kind of an offshoot of the Iran Iraq war, which was a big part of the Iran Contra scandal over here. Um, but anyway, James had implicated Crozier, but especially um, Jonathan Aikens, I believe, who was later uh, Le Cercal, uh chairman in the early 90s before his own uh, fall from grace. Um, but yeah, there already was also this sort of component from that end as well of uh, their involvement in the arms trafficking aspect of the Iran, what we would now think of as the Iran-Contra scandal. So it's definitely um, an interesting component to that. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is quite a web. I mean, when you get right down to it. Uh, so I'm not surprised at all what you're saying. And it hasn't come up on my ra radar. But yeah, I'm I'm with you here. Um, so anyway, it's interesting when I saw Heritage Foundation and then I saw 1982, then I started to wonder immediately, 
about ex-Mooney Michael Warder. Warder officially left the Moonies in 1979, but very soon after, he's got a job at the Heritage Foundation where, if I could say, ex-Mooney Gary Jarman already had an office, and Warder became the director of administration at Heritage from 1980 to 1983. So I suppose, as far as Brian Crozier's operation goes, Warder could have been in the loop. I also found a document, albeit from 1987, which is still in our general timeline here, you know, the Iran-Contra window, in other words. This document shows that the Heritage Foundation had a working relationship with the Global Economic Action Institute, the Mooney Front Organization. So now we've got a former Mooney working at Heritage, which has a connection to Le Cercle, you know, and a Mooney Front that has its relationship with Le Cercle. So I guess then the more dots we connect here, the stronger the hypothesis becomes or theory that there could have been some kind of triangular relationship between Heritage, the Global Economic Action Institute, and Le Cercle. I mean, if indeed there were still Golden Lily assets to be utilized in the 80s by Robert B. Anderson, who set things up from the beginning, and if we have Mooney fronts and key Moonies ex-Moonies or otherwise, surrounding Anderson, or possibly connected to Anderson, we start to get the picture that the Golden Lily was still very much alive and well. Therefore, we have to hold on to the distinct possibility that the Golden Lily, through all the different scenarios I've outlined here, the Moon Organization could, could very well have been a conduit, for Golden Lily funds to be used to support the Iran-Contra operation. We just can't dismiss it, really. And I want to say one more thing about Warner. It has never been confirmed if Michael Warner made a clean break from the Moonies or not, at least in the beginning anyway. By the time he got settled into his job at the Rockford Institute in Illinois, he was clearly in opposition to what Moon was doing by then. But those years at Heritage are still a question mark. And the great Russ Ballant, who has done the best research on Michael Warder that I've seen, from what I could read in between the lines, Ballant was not totally convinced that Warder's work with Heritage wasn't connected to Moon somehow. And once again, mm -hmm. it's one of those things that we'll probably never know for sure one way or the other. And just one more thing on Warder that will interest Moss. I was surprised to see just how many times the Ukrainian Weekly throughout the 80s, even into the 90s, the Ukrainian Weekly published a number of articles authored by Warder. It's just one more little connection to the ABN network. It's kind of interesting, right, Moss? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So so before I finish up here, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to read a couple of short things out of Bohe Pak's autobiography. 
and then something that Sun Myung Moon said in a speech. These three excerpts, they truly help support my theorizing here, whether we're talking about Golden Lily or not, okay? Because what these excerpts are going to show is that the Moon Organization was supporting financially or materially the Iran-Contra cause. Now, the two bits from Bohipak's book, uh, before I read here, these excerpts are from a couple of Russian newspaper articles, articles covering the Iran-Contra story. And these articles, I mean, I'm just going to say it, they showed that the Moon Organization was up to, the, up to their eyeballs in supporting Iran-Contra. So why the editors of Bohipak's book, we're talking, we're talking like true blue Moonies here, okay? Why did true blue Moonies editing Bohipak's book, why would they allow these articles to go into the book in the first place? I mean, it's, it's beyond me. I have no idea if Bohipak signed off on this. Meaning, did he actually give permission to include these articles in the book? Whatever the reality is, those excerpts are there. And I'm going to read them. This is a great way for me to finish my answer here, guys, or to start concluding my answer. So the first article is from the Izvestia. Bad Russian accent, but whatever. And it's dated... August 25th, 1984, and it reads as follows, quote, Secret notes from American intelligence officers fell into the hands of the Washington Post political observer Jay Anderson that tell in black and white of the important role which Reverend Moon plays in the organization of the struggle against the insurgent movements in Central America. It turns out that after the U.S. Congress was forced to pressure of public opinion to limit the growth of CIA appropriations for secret operations in Nicaragua and El Salvador, the White House found an extremely effective, quote unquote, solution. With their help, a pseudo-religious organization named Causa International was created in a number of Central American countries which, as a private non-government group, quote-unquote, took upon itself a significant share of the expense in the battle against national liberation movements in the countries of Central America. It also became clear from the document that the American special services were widely supplying the pupils of the criminal moon with military techniques and equipment. Huge monetary transfers are continuously wired to the address of Causa International, which has its headquarters in the capital city of Honduras. And all this, of course, is covered up with the demagoguery about the striving of Causa International to block the path of world communism. End quote. End first excerpt. I'm getting worked up here, guys. Remember, I'm an ex-Mooney. Okay. All right. The second article from the Pravda. 
Anyway, I'm trying on the accent. Dated <laughs> March 23rd, 1987. <clears throat> it reads, The CIA rules its international indirectly through puppets, such as the political organization of the Unification Church of Moon, which is called CAUSA. It has already been functioning officially for several years in France. CAUSA is used by the CIA not only as a channel for collecting and transferring funds to the Nicaraguans as well as other Contras, but also to subsidize anti-Soviet emigres within the context of Moon's proclaimed strategy of encirclement of the USSR. It is characteristic that CAUSA is headed by the South Korean CIA Colonel Pak, end quote, and second excerpt. Guys, how did this get in Bohe Pak's book? Okay, anyway, that's a rhetorical question. Okay. <laughs> All right, last but not least, here's what Mr. Moon, King Moon, said on his birthday in 1991 with, you guessed it, Bohipak translator. <coughs> Here it goes. <clears throat> Quote, So Reagan reigned this country for eight years with the Reagan Doctrine. But who is the author of the Reagan Doctrine? SDI, commonly known as the Star Wars program, was not widely supported by Reagan and others in government. General Daniel Graham, the founder of SDI, came to father, that means Sun, Mun, Sun Myung Moon, okay? The founder of SDI came to father and asked him for support, saying it was, it was a crucial program for the nation's security. Father pledged his support. SDI was promoted, and finally the Defense Department and the White House became convinced it was a good idea. Three weeks later, Reagan announced in the State of the Union message that SDI would become part of the National Defense Program. If SDI was not created at that time, the existence of the Patriot Missile would be impossible. The Patriot is an offspring of the SDI program. American people today know how valuable that program is. They say, quote, thank God for SDI. Thank God for Reverend Moon. Furthermore, this is still Moon talking on his birthday. Furthermore, Nicaragua was one communist nation which connected North and South America. Even though Cuba is communist, it is an island. Nicaragua is strategically located on the mainland. Father was in prison, but at that time said Nicaragua must be abandoned. The freedom fighters must be supported. U.S. Congress abandoned the project. They didn't want to give any money to the freedom fighters. So the Washington Times, <clears throat> excuse me, made a special editorial on the front page. 
You never see front page editorials, but it was published. Many people sent money and letters to Congress and the Senate. The leaders were shaken and they knew that and knew they had to pass the resolution for support that had already been sent to the trash can. They decided that instead of $14 million, they would send $27 million. That is money that father earned for the Freedom Fighters of Nicaragua. I'm almost done, guys. The CIA and FBI have really been digging to see if father has some ulterior motive. They have discovered that father is the best promoter of Americanism. I told them, no, father is not promoting Americanism. Father is promoting Godism. The CIA man said, no, Godism is our language for Americanism. But the terminology they don't understand is true parentism. We'll teach them that next. <laughs> oh, okay, guys. I think these three little gems speak for themselves. But let me add just one more piece of evidential gold, no pun intended, and thanks for being patient here. I actually sent Keith and Moss this a couple of weeks ago. Now, Sun Myung Moon, Moon was released from a halfway house in August 1985. That coming after a year or so at Danbury Prison for tax crimes, etc. Now, right after Moon's release, there was this homecoming celebration at Moon's estate in New York. And Bohee Pak was doing the translating for Moon in front of all the Mooney faithful. But during that gathering, Bohee Pak presents Moon this caricature where Moon is portrayed as Rambo. It's a picture. It's a piece of art. And Bohee Pak called it Moonbow, Moonbow. Yeah. And there's Moon carrying this missile, a la Sylvester Stallone. Sorry, guys, right. I get angry, but just let me keep going. You get the picture, <laughs> but here's the crazy thing, or maybe it's not so crazy. This is right at the time that the private military supply operation for Iran-Contra was getting into high gear. And here's Moon carrying this missile. But here's where it gets crazier. There really was a Rambo that helped the Contras, but it was an organization. It was called the Restore a More Benevolent World Order. How about that for a name? And it was nicknamed the Rambo Coalition, yeah. a coalition of secular groups involved in financing various freedom revolutions, quote unquote, or counterinsurgency operations, which was what was going on with the Contras. And when you look at the coalition members, it reads like a who's who 
of people and organizations that were connected to the Moonies. I mean, come on. Keith and Moss, you saw what I sent you. That was just yeah. in your that was just in your face. Right? Yeah, I mean, it looks like a movie poster. And I think that the Rambo Coalition is is a, is kind of also a pun off of Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition. Kind of like the answer to that. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I I mean, I can't speak on that, but I mean, I mean, Pac, he he's he was always Bohe Pac was always dying to tell the diehard Moonies like myself, you know, you know, all of these things. But he had to do it in coded language. OK, or, you know, or whatever. Or he would translate Moon's words the way that he wanted to or whatever. OK, but anyway, I think it's pretty clear here that Pox operation was facilitating the military supply network down in Central America, weapons or otherwise. I mean, what else can we think, right? So, well, as I, ex- I, one thing I've noticed, Don, is is that the the Mooney voices, the big elite Mooney voices like Bohipak and and Moon himself, and 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 the uh, the various you know newspapers that they had and stuff. Uh, that you can see on tparents.org, they're remarkably candid. They, they really just feel like, this is what we did. We're doing it. <laughs> it's just, I don't yeah. know. They, yeah, I know. This revelation of the method personified these guys. It's like, yeah, yeah. we're doing this. And it's yeah. like totally shady. And they're totally right. like, it's us. Right. We want credit for it. Yeah. Now watch us get away with it. <laughs> yeah, right. So, Recluse, if anyone out there listening still has any lingering doubts about the Mooney connections to Iran-Contra, Golden Lily involvement or otherwise, maybe all these things that I've put forth here will put those doubts to rest. And with that, I'm throwing it back to you. All right. That was excellent, Don. Um, to circle back to uh, Julian Amory here for a second as well, um, it's actually one of the... Uh, the theories that I uh, roll out in my book, A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment, that um, Amory had come to control at least a portion of this, you know, kind of black market gold slush fund. I think um, in this case, it was probably related to the Black Eagle Trust, the Nazi gold. Um, But the thing you have to understand about Amory is he was pretty much the you know, the coup master par excellence for the British throughout uh, the 40s, all the way up through the early 1960s. Um, And the thing about this is he wasn't, he was never really a part of MI6. I mean, he worked with them sometimes, but the guy had his own private intelligence network and frequently he was more well-funded than MI6. And nobody has ever really been able to explain where the money that this guy was getting was coming from. Um, you know, certainly his father, Leopold Emery, was very well connected politically, but he was not a wealthy man by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and really, there weren't a lot of other members of his family that would have had the kind of resources to fund the type of operations that this guy was managing by the 1950s. Um, so, you know, you got to kind of keep in mind that this was a guy who had a lot of experience running these kind of black market operations for decades by the time um, the 1980s rolled around. Um, of course, the infamous uh, was it BCCI, I think, the big bank um, that mm-hmm. was used to launder a lot of this. Um, 
they had actually approached Amory to be their chairman, I believe, in the late 1970s when they were getting set up. Um, probably no doubt because of his expertise in laundering money for decades. But um, I think at that time he was a little preoccupied with um, uh, bringing a government of more resolve to the UK or something to that effect. Um, but regardless, uh, he's a very interesting guy, and uh, I do a lot more with that in my book. Um, I don't know if there was any direct ties that he would have had to Golden Lily, but it is interesting to note that um, one of his assets uh, when he was in the Special Operations Executive during uh, the Second World War was a guy named King Peter of Yugoslavia, um, mm. who later ended up um, in the States uh, in one of the various orders of St. John uh, with a lot of the, uh, the MacArthur military men who certainly... Uh, or at least were long alleged to have had direct access to the Golden Lily funds. Uh, so that is interesting. And uh, yes, King Peter and Amory uh, continued their association after the war. Um, King Peter actually uh, loaned Amory, I think it was his Rolls Royce or something like that, when he was campaigning for the first time for Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Keith Wacko and uh, its American chiefs became the target for one of the weirdest lawsuits ever in the wake of the Iran-Contra scandal and other goings-on in Central America during this time. Tell us about the Christic Institute and their secret team allegations. Yeah, I will. Let's get, let's get weird. Um, once upon a time, there was this movement coming out of something called the Christic Institute. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-C, like Christic now called the Romero Institute, and it was this social justice movement with an ecumenical <clears throat> kind of religious bent. And they employed investigators and lawyers and activists, definitely with like a left-wing kind of progressive slant. And they took their inspiration from this Jesuit, uh, kind of like New Age Jesuit guy named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who came up with this idea of the called Christic or Christic energy? Um, and interesting, interestingly, that was like the nonosphere or something. What, is that what it's called? The, it, 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 my, the, the newosphere, you mean? Newosphere. I, I don't know. I, I'm not totally sure, but it's kind of like this new age Catholic thing. And the guy was like a paleontologist and a bit on the quacky wacky side, you know. So but, fascinating but, how these things always seem to come full circle. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like new age that like with Catholic flavor. So, you know, it, and, and along those lines um, in uh, Marilyn Ferguson's Aquarian conspiracy book, they cite uh, Deschardin as, as a big influence as well. So uh, uh, sharing that influence with this Christic Institute um, is, is interesting. Um, hey, Keith, but, could uh, I interject with something real quick? Yeah, you sure can. So, Believe it or not, in the very early years when Young Un Kim, who I'm going to talk about again today, later, uh, for those who don't remember, she was the first Korean to come to the United States uh, for the Moonies. So as a part of her study plan for people that she was trying to recruit during the early years, part, part of the study material was Chardin. Wow. Just, just to put that into the mix here. Yeah. A lot of so that, that guy was with him. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I know, you know, and, and to the extent that he uh, influenced the Marilyn Ferguson's weird movement, I mean, that, I don't know, it's, it's like another subject, but it was the, the, the Aquarian conspiracy kind of came out of, it was like the For the Millions version of um, Changing Images of Man put out by the Stanford Research Institute. Uh, and it's this whole like, oh, there's all these, you know, horizons being you know, crossed by all these different fields and we're on the brink of some great awakening of human potential. And really it was just the left to restore the dignity of work, I believe, or something to that effect. Well, Uh, that was a piece of it. And to also try to jumpstart, uh, you know, new mythologies that we need, we need a new paradigm and and all this kind of stuff. And, and really it just was like, there's a quote on page structure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It was like there's a quote on like page 67 of the Inquiry and Conspiracy talking about whereas previously the left was all caught up in materialism, you know, the new paradigm is going to be all about self-actualization and transformation. It's like, man, sit down, boomer. You know, it's easy to like throw shade on materialism when you have plenty of materials around you. It's like if you, you know, did you have breakfast today? Yes, you did. Okay. But I digress. Uh, Christic Institute. Um, yeah, it's it, that that Aquarian conspiracy stuff's relevant to the historical context of the 80s because that was that was big. But they shared this influence with this Chardin guy. So in, anyway, in 1984, there was an attempt on the life of one of the Contra leaders, uh, Eden Pastora, and he lived. But like seven people, including three journalists, they got killed and a, and a bunch of people were wounded. And one of the wounded was a, a journalist named Tony Avergon. I may be saying that wrong, uh, along with his wife, uh, Martha Honey, and they started investigating what happened and they figured that it was the CIA that had done it. And and they specifically named this rancher, John Hull, whose ranch was on the Nicaragua, Costa Rica border. And it was used to support the Contras and also as a drug transshipment point. Um, And Hull sued them for defamation. Uh, at the time when they implicated him, but they actually had the receipts and his case was thrown out. So then Avergon and his wife enlisted the help of this Christic Institute, which had a good reputation. They'd helped uh, uh, in the Silkwood case get, you know, like a victory for Karen Silkwood for uh, regarding like the, the private nuclear industry. You know, it was a movie that was made out about that and, so, you know, they they kind of had this reputation going as as like these are the good left wing lawyers you can get to, you know, on your side. So so when they got up to to file this this suit against the government, you know, going after the CIA and everybody this time and they get this guy, uh, Daniel Sheehan, who is one of the founders of the Christic Institute and it was like his main, very telegenic, uh, charismatic lawyer. And he like blows the whole case they have up into this giant conspiracy thing that had like some truth to it, but it also made it pretty muddy and too broad to really be effective. And basically the gist of it, and I'm giving a very uh, brief account of this. Okay. So there's, there's more to it, but basically said that Iran Contra and all the shenanigans in Central America that led to this uh, bombing, this Lapenka bombing, are the result of this secret team, he called it, the secret team of old CIA guys and basically like your fabulous MacArthur boys or China cowboys 
the old SS guys that show up everywhere in the parapolitical about the Cold War. Like basically, you know, Peter Dale Scott's like in first 40 years of his entire career writing about these same guys, Singlov, Ray Klein, Ted Shackley and all those those guys. Right. And, you know, there's there's a lot of fire under that smoke, but there's also a lot of smoke and uh, a lot of Sheehan's allegations came out of that parapolitical literature at the time. And um, and also he had his informants, a couple of allegedly disgruntled former CIA CIA agents. But he's he's like also talking with Ed Wilson, who, you know, this guy was implicated in like selling arms to Gaddafi in the 70s. And he's in that Nugent hand thing. It's like off the subject. This is all oh, this is such a huge basket of topics but anyway he's another former intel guy and probably not the best guy to go to for straight information and uh so anyway this this idea of the secret team you know it, hold, it there's something to it it holds some water and and these cowboy guys we've been talking about a lot of them in this series and it's obvious they pulled some strings and pulled some plugs on people for decades but um but at the same time, blaming everything on a secret team is like way too facile. And it's kind of like a limited hangabout, you know, hangout, right? Like, you know, what about the whole systems that those secret team people were part of? I mean, you know, they're cowboys, sure. But like, are they just off the rails all the time with with no consequences, you know? Um, or are they really just tools of American foreign policy working within that system, even if at a plausibly deniable distance you know um the powers that be do know how to get rid of people i mean if they were really that far off the res you know so you know like what about gladio what about the vatican and the p2 lodge what about the unification church you know or, or the world anti-communist league there's there's he does mention in his affidavit a little bit about the united states council for world freedom but you know like the wackle connections are, are kind of not very well fleshed out in some of this stuff. Um, so, you know, there's like these whole international networks that are tied up in what happened with the Lepenka bombing and they matter every bit as much as this little cadre of secret operators. Right. Um, once again, Lee Harvey Oswald and limited hangout have the same initials, but anyway, so, but, but, but then you dig a little deeper and the whole idea of this secret team, it originally came from an air force officer, Fletcher Prouty who published a book with that same name in the title and his basic thesis, this was in the seventies, um, you know, secret cadre of old cowboys who kind of ran the world through their spooky connections and propaganda and assassinations. And, and Prouty would go on to get really cozy with the Liberty lobby and the Institute for historical review. And then in the seventies, the Liberty lobby also got cozy with the Lyndon LaRouche outfit during that time and LaRouche's outfit and the Liberty lobby were reaching out to and feeding information to Daniel Sheehan when he was developing his case. And by filling it with all this stuff that might've been a good side argument to make, but was kind of a field of the actual, you know, subject. Sheehan wound up torpedoing this whole lawsuit. And this is one of these cases where like the Costa Rica People literally were ready to extradite or, or like indict CIA agents and extradite them to the United States, which is not something that happened all the time. So there was like a lot of meat on that bone. And it could have gone very differently. But instead, it was like 
let's make it into this big grand conspiracy theory. And, um, and, and not only did they lose, but they went on the hook for like a million dollars in damages and penalties for bringing a sloppy, frivolous lawsuit. And so if you look in like American case law, Avergan versus Hull, it's become a fairly well-known addition to U.S. case law where you can punish the other side's lawyers or the other party if they're bringing a frivolous lawsuit. And that case actually gets cited in things that are very not related to any of this deep state kind of stuff, but it just made it into case law. But anyway, again, this is like a really short account of it, but I'm bringing it up because it was this was an important part of the goings on in the 80s and and to this day, really. So uh, Chip Burley uh, is accomplished researcher from political research associates and he spent a lot of time looking into how much she and really was influenced by the likes of like the liberty lobby and the larouche people and one interpretation is that these right-wing sources kind of did a controlled demolition on the case and making it unwinnable and uh if you look at the isgp the institute for the study of globalization and politics uh the joel vander region website politics the Institute for COVID, yeah. Politics. Yes, that's a mouthful. Sorry, Joel. ISGP.nl, let's say. Um, Joel's excellent. I really recommend it. The Cult of National Security Trolls. should just Google that article. And Joel Vanderregen's talking about Sheehan being Rockefeller funded and talks about him getting money from George Soros in later years and being involved with uh, – Gorbachev's, you know, some kind of like think tank to discover the new paradigm. We're back to that new age, new paradigm garbage. Um, yeah, it talks about him getting money from George Soros and from the, the New World Foundation in the 1980s at a time when actually Hillary Clinton, of all people, was part of it. it, it it's just really weird. Um, and she, and meanwhile, had gone to bat apparently successfully for Scientology in the 70s. And like he won some case on their behalf and then he ducks out and goes into this monastery and becomes like a Jesuit, which is which is just weird. And he pops back up in, again in the 80s with this new age Christic Institute and then uses it to torpedo this big case that had the potential to really stick. And uh, according to Avergon, Sheehan basically sacrificed his client's case on the altar of his own ego or his agenda i don't know um it's a really weird story but it apparently cost singlob some money or maybe it's better to say that it gave him an opportunity to raise some money because he was putting out fundraising appeals and like the abn papers at the time saying oh we're under attack by these liberal weirdos and we need money for our legal defense and uh he actually talks about it in his autobiography um yeah uh and the IRS winds up auditing the USCWF around this time, partly because of the Christic suit and partly because of all the you know shady stuff they were up to. But then Sheehan ducks out again, and he pops up into the 90s, and now he's into all this UFO disclosure cult stuff, literally trying to like publicly lobby the Vatican on behalf of the Jesuits for whom he's like apparently a lawyer to release what they supposedly know about the Space Brothers. Um, you know, and he's still like around today. Uh, it's just, it's an odd thing, but the Christic story is important to bring up because it's, it's part of like the wackle story in the 1980s. 
But it's also important as it relates to like today because it, it illustrates how disinformation can torpedo legit research and investigation and inquiries or even lawsuits um, or as the Agenta Press guys might have said to toxify or intoxicate them with this like poison cray cray pill. Um, and it also shows how these deep state factions can compete with each other through these operatives of, of like lawyers and propagandists. And that stuff is really relevant today in the age of like the post Pizzagate world that we're in and Illuminati conspiracies and Jewish conspiracies and all these things that can throw people off of like real stories. Um, but uh, it was influential at the time. There's like a book called uh, The Iran-Contra Connection by some pretty good heavy hitters, Jane Hunter, Jonathan Marshall, and Peter Dale Scott. And it came out on the heels of the Christic lawsuit. And the subtitle was Secret Teams and Covert Operations in the Reagan <laughs> Era. So you can see how like it's stuck, you know, uh, and it's kind of like the poison pill dragging it down. Um and it, but you know, but it dovetailed nicely with the kind of stuff Peter Dale Scott had been writing about for years at that point. Like I said, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw a uh, a thing in the Globe tabloid the other day, and it was just basically neo Nazis organized the January sixth Capitol putsch. And it's like it's the same kind of thing. Like, oh, okay, I think there were some Nazis there, but did, are, they, are they the ones that really put it all together? You know, or are we just gonna like shift the blame onto the? I don't know. Just it's interesting. My point is, if if uh, if you've got what you think is like a strong legal case to go after the deep state, and some like Michael Avenatti or Al Sharpton shows up and says, "I'll take your case pro bono," you might want to think twice. <laughs> there you go. That's that's my little rant about the Christic Institute lawsuit. No, that was great, man. That was very. Uh, that was quite fascinating. And uh, definitely puts like some interesting perspectives on the you know alleged opposition, quote unquote. Uh, right. Hey, just to chirp in, Al Sharpton, boy, he he loved him a, a bit of Sun Myung Moon. I'll tell you that much. He's got he's got quite the hi history with Moon. So just mm -hmm. wanted to get the, get that in. Well, it seems like a reoccurring thing. These guys they really love money in general. So I mean, if you have access to money, you know, I mean, they can um they can uh become very cozy with almost anything. Yeah. It's more than one kind of mercenary out there. They don't <laughs> all carry guns. All right, uh, John, let's touch on a topic that you're very well versed in. That is the Council for National Policy, or CMP. What were its links to Wackle, and do you see it as kind of a successor I mean, yes, very much so. It seemed once the heat was being put on Wackle, um, you know, 80s, late 70s, uh, once it started becoming into the forefront of um, actually being reported every so now and then um, on, or, you know, you have researchers writing about uh, Wackle's activities. Granted, it's, it's scarce compared to what we know today, but it was still occurring. Um, it seemed that, you know, like a, a good, you know, shell game in a back alley, you know, um, they had to move it to somewhere else, right? So they kind of moved it, in my belief, uh, to form a kind of a more out in the open group, but however, you know, very secretive too at the same time, right? Which would be the Council for National Policy, where, you know, they would, they'd have a building, 
uh, primarily located, um, you know, at, at, at first, uh, the CMP when it was founded in 1981 was held in uh, the house of uh, Louisiana uh, Congressman uh, Ludi, uh, Louis, uh, Woody Louis Jenkins. Um, and uh, eventually would, they would move the headquarters to right outside of the Capitol uh, where uh, uh, Recluse and Billy and I had uh, visited to shoot for our documentary on the secret right um, and still kind of being like in a nondescript uh, office building. Uh, but they still have a official president a presence at the uh, in in Washington D.C. So the um, CMP had many uh, people that were involved, uh, even from its foundation, uh, that would be si- uh, similar uh, names of people that you might recognize from us discussing, uh, you know, doing these episodes during the whole Wackle series. You know, you have uh, Houdon, you know, or resident uh, ex-Mooney expert, cold expert, um, you know, discussed the numerous connections between Wackle and the Reverend Selma Moon and the Unification Church. And I've discussed somewhat on the farm and on my own channel, we read the documents, the connections between um, the Unification Church and the Council for National Policy, so much so that one of the main uh, uh, funders of the CMP back in 1981 was uh, the Reverend Sung uh, Mung Moon in the Unification Church uh, to help start its its, its inception? Um, and you have you know many people uh, within uh, you know the circle of the Unification Church um, and the CMP, like Gary Jarman, for example, um, and you know many other people. Uh, the, the kind of the circles kind of all overlap. Like if you had a giant diagram right between Wackle, the Unification Church. And uh, the um, Council for National Policy. Um, now, uh, Keith um, was able to help me uh, get some documents from um, some of Larry McDonald's uh, papers, um, a former uh, congressman from Georgia. Um, and he, uh, of course, was a major member uh, within WACL um, and was also a um, founding member, now we know. Of the Council for National Policy was also a finding, founding financier of the CMP. Of course, both him and Major uh, General uh, John K. Singlob, uh, who was a former uh, member of the OSS, a founding member of the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, he was also a founding member, too, of the Council for National Policy. Of course, uh, the Western Goals Foundation was started by um, Larry McDonald and uh, Major General John K. Singlob. And of course, uh, if we're going to talk about lobbying for the Iran-Contra affair, which we've discussed, you know, on, on this episode and many episodes previously beforehand, uh, a lot of that funding did come from Counts for National Policy meetings. A lot of that funding came from John K. Singlob uh, uh, for the Contras. A lot of the funding came from uh, Oliver North, who's got his own connections to Wackle, which you discuss. Also, you know, going to CMP meetings and lobbying for uh, uh, funds uh, and giving policy briefings to to the CMP, which would later be given to Ronald Reagan, um, all in the guise of quote unquote fighting communism. So yes, Ronald Reagan was receiving national security briefings at from the Council for National Policy meetings, some that he did attend while president, some he was not able to attend while president. We know that from the uh, Morton C. Blackwell papers. 
and the uh, Reagan Library that are on the internet that you can go look them up and see. Um, I mean, pretty much a majority of the uh, uh, American side of Wackel, uh, a lot of it was uh, CMP members and influence from the Council for National Policy too, as well, and that later, you know, morphed into you know the CMP that we know today. I mean, we talked about Roger Pearson. Uh, Roger Pearson got his funding from the Pioneer Fund. The Pioneer Fund, you know, was started by uh, Tom Ellis, uh, the second president of the CMP in 1982, uh, as well as uh, my senator from North Carolina, Jesse Helms, um, who, uh, of course, is involved in the Rand Contra affair, the Latin American death squads as well, major involvement as a financier and, and, you know, controlling ops and everything with Oliver North. And so, like, when, when is it in, right? Like, how are these people all not connected with one another? It's, it's, it's. One and the same. It's a continuation of the project, in my opinion. Can, can I jump in there real quick, yes, Mr. Brisson? Yes, of course. Yes. It, those papers, what a doozy, right? Um, so one of the things you're, you're talking about, Larry McDonald and, and all his connections into all this and starting Western Goals, which we talked about in the last episode, and being a really important part, at, present at the creation and writing some of the bigger higher-end checks, you know, to get the CMP off the ground in 1981. And he's like a John Birch Society chief. And then shortly thereafter takes over the whole John Birch Society. So it's like, but this well is the John. Down, yeah. Along with like Western Goals Foundation as well, which was effectively a private intelligence network and um, had a, a sister organization in the UK that uh, had a lot right. of of uh, Brian uh, Crozier. Is that how it's pronounced yeah. on Crozier? Yeah. Crozier uh, linked, or whatever. Crozier, yes, linked into that. So, um, you know, to kind of put that in perspective, I mean, the same guys over uh, in the UK were doing the same kind of stuff that the Amer their American counterparts were up to here. I, I don't want to take away from what you're saying or, or uh, interrupt you too much because I talk plenty in these things. But that that the fact that this new right organizer who's like setting up the U.S. Wackle branch, present at the creation of CMP, is like the head of the John Birch Society at the same time. It just, it's significant. Yeah. yeah, well, around the same time. I think he became president of the John Birch Society in 1982 when the CMP was founded in 1981. But yes, it was before his death in 1983, uh, the fall of 1983, uh, Larry McDonald, when he went down with the uh, Korean Airlines 007 a jet. The uh, um, Soviet uh, Union supposedly shot down. Um, but yeah, it's it's... I mean, you guys mentioned uh, Lieutenant General Daniel Graham. Uh, he was a long-term Council for National Policy member. Uh, Graham was, um, and uh, you know, of course, I mean, what is what can we say that Graham wasn't involved in, right? That many people, uh, you know, don't know, like Star Wars program and his connections to the Universal Church of Triumphant, with them pushing him and High Frontier and everything, and him working directly with Craig J. Spence and being involved in the Franklin scandal and trying to say that Craig J. Spence was, a, you know, the whole Franklin scandal was a Soviet plot and that Washington Times interview by, by Paul Rodriguez, uh, you know, completely detracting away the American CIA's involvement, and the CMP's involvement directly in the Franklin scandal. Um, so, I mean, all, all these people are in bed with one another. It's just another continuation uh, it's kind of like the, the Bilderberg Group is now the Atlantic Council, right? So you're always going to have these continuations of these groups uh, once someone starts putting 
you know, more research and they become more comes to light and people start putting pressure on these groups. Uh, however, I will say since majority of the uh, truth movement, quote unquote, is controlled by a lot of these uh, right wing John Birchers and Council for National Policy members, less information has come to light on the John Birch Society and the CMP and all the focus has been put on the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, the Bilderberg Group uh, because of that. So we do know some more things about the CMP that have come to light over the past few years through my research and the research of Josh Reeves and the research, you know, that, that you have been doing, Keith, or, um, you know, the research that Recluse has been doing, the research Don's been doing. I mean, people have been bringing this information out there uh, about the Council for National Policy and their vast connections, uh, but we still don't know very much about La, La Circla, right? I mean, we know even less about La Circla at this point. Uh, so it's, it's just, you know, okay, so Wackles, some information starts to come out, starts to be, you know, reported on, you know, connections between Wackle and the Round Contras, he's even being reported in, um, uh, uh, national news when you have them talking about John K. Singlob or having to talk about, uh, uh, AmeriCares with, uh, Robert, uh, McCauley. Of course, AmeriCares also has his own connections to the Council for National Policy, uh, to, as well, directly with Robert McCauley. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, it it was just a, it's just a continuation. It's like, okay, so we can't put lipstick on the pig of Wackle as much anymore. So now we're the Council for National Policy, and now we're a 501c3, but we also have a 501c4 CMP action, and we're able to lobby the government, and we're doing it more official, and it's done down and directly on the streets of D.C. That's my belief of what happened, and it was the evolution of this kind of right-wing side of the world order where now they're like okay we're going to be the antithesis of the cfr which is what they said but we're going to do it completely in secret and few people are going to know about us and that's gotten to us where we are today right so yeah in essence um yep. and it's interesting too to kind of take back to what um keith was saying uh, with the christic institute and then i guess the other big um kind of Aggressive parapolitical publisher in that era would have been what South End Press, right, Keith? Um, uh, yeah, that's, that's one of them. But there um, was more. <laughs> but it, it's, but yeah. it, it's kind of interesting, though, when you look at um, you know the groups that they really had singled out uh, in that era were uh, the American Security Council and Wackel, who up to that point um, had really avoided a lot of criticism, you know, prior to the 1980s. I mean, what with the ASC, I mean, I think the only really lengthy account of it, uh, outside of Peter Dale Scott might've been empower on the right, uh, by William Turner in 1970. It just, you know, wasn't really addressed a lot, but in the 1980s, you know, it became fair game along with Wackle, but this is kind of at the same time that the CMP is being set up. And it kind of seems like there's a passing of the baton just as uh, there's this limited hangout concerning the ASC and Wackle. Um, so you can kind of see in that context how, um, you know, as one group kind of serves its purpose and is being winding down, wound down, there are these other networks that are being set up and effectively are being ignored by a lot of these researchers coming from the other side. Um, but then at well, the same I mean, they time, had, we they, should forgive them, but they didn't, they didn't always, the, the picture wasn't as clear. You know, a lot of these papers we just got, uh, yeah, that's they, true. Are, they that's are marked true. confidential, but I mean, confidential. Was, don't share I mean, Bellin was able to get some stuff out about the CMP though, I think by like what, 1990 or something like that. Right. Well, we had some people that were able to do so. So we have, um, the Coors Connection book, uh, who was, that was written by Chip Bartlett, wasn't it? No, that no was that's, 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 oh. that's cool. Russ Ballant, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. sorry, yes. So you have Ballant, 
getting some information about the CMP. You also have Chip Bartlett also getting out information about the CMP too as well. Um, so you had some people and then, around I mean, you've that got, time. You know, you've got David Teacher, bless his heart, who was trying to get his book on LeSir Cal published, like, what, in 93 or 94? And, I mean, nobody was willing to touch it. I mean, from what I understand, Lobster wouldn't even, you know, uh, help put it out or anything like that. So, you know, I mean, there were some people who had good information on this stuff who were trying to get it out there. And they're just, you know, even the alternative media didn't want to put it out. Yeah, you're right. And I mean, look, we can discuss Bill Cooper again and him being a part of that nexus, too. But he at least tried to expose a Liberty Lobby. You know, that's mm. something, you know, Liberty Lobby with yeah. Willis Carto. I had kind of, connections to the you got to remember, though, John, too, like as well. the, the Liberty Lobby, the Carto had really pissed off a lot of people by that point in time. I mean, this was like the whole era in the early 90s when, um, you know, they, uh, what was it, Cardo and Henry Fisher had tried to defraud that, uh, what, that descendant of Thomas Edison or something like that, who had been putting up <laughs> a lot of the money for the Institute for Historical Review. So basically, it, you know, kind of touched off this piss, uh, pissing match and, you know, these right-wing, quote-unquote, alternative media circles over this this money, effectively over the Edison, that the Edison um, heir had been planning on leaving the Institute for Historical Review and that right. Carto was trying to siphon off. So anyway, a lot of people had a grudge about Cardo because of that. So (laughs) it's kind of hard to say if Cooper might have been doing a hatchet job uh, as revenge for somebody. um, Yeah, but going after Bo Greitz, though, however, even from almost the very beginning, though, I don't know. All right, that's fair. Uh, Keith, were you going to say something there? I didn't mean to. Oh no, man. I, we we can move on. We could we could. I, I love it. I love it, man. Yeah. But, yeah. We should, we should keep going. All right. All right. Um. So all right. So we are now getting into the home stretch. To wrap up, I want to give each one of you a chance to address the legacy of Wacko and why it is still relevant in the 21st century. So this is the John Galt moment for each one of you guys. All right. <laughs> All right. So, Moss, let us start with you, sir. What are your thoughts on the legacy of Wackel? Well, um, okay, to start, um, there's a German newspaper, uh, Die Zeit, uh, I think it means The Times. About just over a week ago, they published um, an article on this growing uh, international neo-Nazi network that they uh, dubbed the, the Brown International and um, there's a, one of the groups involved in this informal Brown International is the um, neo-Nazi Azov movement. And, um, you know, there is kind of a somewhat flimsy connection to be made to the World Anti-Communist League through um, Azov because uh, in October 2016, Azov launched its political party, the the National Corps, which previously the the political wing was called the Civic Corps. And so a Ukrainian-American, um, who if not at that time, then at least formerly, was a pretty important OUNB uh, Ukrainian-American member. And uh, also a, uh, someone who, you know, spoke at conferences of the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, which of course was a significant uh, component of the World Anti-Communist League. Um, And uh, he was in 2016, he was described, Zavarch was described as um, the chief manager of the Azov uh, Civic Corps 
and saying he was supposed to be the uh, interlocutor of between the Ukrainian far right and their foreign sponsors. I don't really know to what extent this is true, and I don't think he's um, he's apparent he's supposedly not involved anymore with Azov. But um, so in that way, you know, the connection is a little bit flimsy to the World Anti-Communist League, and you know, maybe it's kind of a weak argument to make that this emerging international neo-Nazi network is uh, like the successor of the World Anti-Communist League. But Alfred Rosenberg, who um, I think I was talking about in the first uh, episode of this series on the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations or ABN, that he was, um, well, he was kind of like, a, he was a big ideologue behind Hitler. Um, and when Hitler first went to uh, prison uh, after the uh beer hall putsch uh um he named rosenberg as the interim party leader and rosenberg like basically utterly failed in that position um and after that was kind of uh shafted a bit or at least as like goebbels put it that he was a he was seen as a man of ideas not of action um so but at least early on he was uh looking like he could be you know hitler's right-hand man and so anyways um in 1936 uh rosenberg proposed to hitler that germany should host what he called a quote anti-bolshevist world congress and he was saying um that he saw this uh thing which never happened but um as something separate from the anti-common turn um but uh as something that would pave the way for a quote anti-Semitic World Congress, so in that sense, um, this so-called Brown International is kind of the, you know, logical successor of the World Anti-Communist League. Um, uh, politically speaking, it was not all that diverse. Um, I mean, I guess depending on how you deep into the differences you want to get that people on the right have, but. Um, it was a pretty a pretty diverse uh, organization, um, you know. Obviously, in that it's encompassing people from all over the world. This new Brown International is, you know, is just exclusively for neo Nazis and white supremacists. Um, but anyways, this guy Zavarich, uh, in 1993. He uh, co-founded uh, something called the Congress of Ukrainian Nationalists um, with Slava Stetsko, who's the wife and at that point the widow of Yaroslav Stetsko, um, who had who was the leader for life in turn of the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations. And so Yaroslav Stetsko died in 1986. He had been leading the at the ABN at that point for throughout its 40 years of existence, and um, he had been the leader of the OUNB, or the, the faction of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, originally led by no notorious Nazi collaborator, collaborator uh, Stepan Bandera uh, since 1968. And Slava Stetsko, towards the end, um, was kind of stepping in to run a lot of the day-to-day -day operations. And she became the new leader of the ABN, and I believe took his uh, seat on the executive board of the World Anti-Communist League. And um, not right away, but she did by, I think, 1992 become the leader of the OUNB. And um, I'm just 
clarifying all this just to say make the point um so uh slava stetsko and zavarich roman zavarich ukrainian-american uh co-founded this far-right ounb political party or at least it was the congress of ukrainian nationalists was closely tied to the ounb um was its like overt face if you will um in 1990s ukraine and it was a far-right political party although um you know, for someone like Slava Stetsko and others who are part of this fascist organization, the OUNB, um, who had basically, through World War II, you know, only lived under uh, authoritarianism and were advocates of a different form of authoritarian authoritarianism, um, living in democratic or at least, you know, rel- form of uh, democracy relatively democratic countries for decades um, inevitably had an effect on uh, these uh, otherwise like unreconstructed unreconstructed fascists. Um, I think at the very least they learned how to behave themselves or at least that they need to try to behave themselves somewhat. I think through years of in the World Anti-Communist League and the ABN and in the OUNB and otherwise, that they see that there is a cost for not having any kind of filter. So Zavarich and Stetsko had um, rivals in the OUNB network that uh, in the diaspora and uh, in Ukraine. And um, and so I think they kind of their rivals tend to be more extremist than they were. So I think they kind of represented a more moderate um, sub kind of faction, uh, as I understand it. But anyways, um, so the Congress of Ukrainian Nationalists, something they were to find out when they moved to Ukraine, is that because Zavarich, for example, you know, he renounces his uh, U.S. citizenship um, and becomes a full Ukrainian citizen because Ukraine doesn't have dual citizenship. Um and so, but the Congress of Ukrainian Nationalists and other nationalist far-right groups, um, the OUNB diaspora is to find out, uh, is very unpopular um, in Ukraine. The Congress of Ukrainian Nationalists in the first elections that it participates in 1994 gets just over 1% of the vote. Um, still, that's over 300,000 votes, but still pretty uh, insignificant. And so... The uh, there's this whole like OUNB apparatus in 1990s Ukraine that kind of splinters by the 21st century, and the paramilitary arm of the Congress of Ukrainian Nationalists called the Trident, um, which I was reading just about recently, uh, apparently from the beginning had a very close relationship with uh, uh, Ukrainian security or intelligence services. Um, that it broke off by the 21st century and later um, was the main group behind the formation of the notoriously extremist, uh, neo-fascist, etc., right sector. And um, so where am I going with this? Is basically that, uh, I mean, we we spent another episode um, previous separate from this, uh, or two episodes actually separate from this Wackle series talking about some of the OUNB legacy. So I don't want to just re, uh, repeat myself there, 
But um, the Congress of Ukrainian Nationalists has become, um, I think it still cooperates with the OUMB, but it is its own thing also. However, these three um, different arms of the OUMB, or at least that were arms of the OUMB in the 1990s, in 2014 came together with some other organizations, mostly Ukrainian organizations, to form uh, what was called and is called the ABBN, which is the Alliance of Baltic and Black Sea Nations. So it's basically an attempt at an ABN 2.0. <laughs> but there's a reason why you haven't really heard of this, because, um, you know, the ABN kind of, as I understand it, won out over uh, its competitors, you know, the Intermarium and the Prometheus uh, League, which are basically trying to do the same thing to form these, uh, unite these different anti-Soviet and or anti-Russian um, movements or organizations, what have you. And the um, this sort of far-right internationalism, as I was getting at uh, as a, in the opening, uh, really has been, the neo-Nazis have led the way in that. So the OUNB, uh, and those associated with them are more what you could call neo-capital N nationalists. And um, they cooperate with the neo-Nazis, but they themselves are not these sig-heiling neo-Nazis and with Nazi tattoos, with some exceptions. But um, anyways, that's just what I'm getting at, is that you know there's an attempt to create a new ABN, but... Um, in the 21st century, you know, I think if uh, if there is going to be some kind of formal international far right new world anti-communist league, that it's going to be a neo-Nazi project, not um, some, you know, where everyone's just going to be able to get along or try to get along on the basis of we're all anti-communists. You know, you have to you're going to have to go a little further than that in today's world. And so, Marvin Liebman's not welcome. Yes, that's essentially what I'm getting at. <laughs> not this but time. One small fun or not so fun fact um, before moving on. The Congress of Ukrainian Nationalists, and this sounds like some kind of Russian propaganda or whatever, but you won't find it in Russian propaganda. You won't find it on Russia Today or whatever, wherever. Um, in 2015 to 2016, um, if not sooner and later, um, the Congress of Ukraine Nationalist was operating what it called a museum slash patriotic center. And I even think they named it after Slava Stetsko. Um, it was in the same building as the headquarters of the World Bank in Ukraine. So you had for at least a year or two, um, you know, I would love to know what these World Bank employees thought seeing these far right uh, activists coming and going from the building where they worked, including the leader of this group that spearheaded uh, the creation, and in my opinion, still seems to be kind of in the vanguard of right sector. Like sharing the same building with the uh, international bankers? Damn. <laughs> yeah. That's like some tense trips to the urinal there. Yeah. And uh, so, anyways, before I realized that the OUNB um, still exists, which was only about happened in 2019 where previously i've just been mostly interested in this as a historical subject um the ounb and the abn 
um before i realized the oumb still exists uh i was looking at the legacy of lev dobriansky as the like lasting legacy or the most important kind of component of the lasting legacy of the research that i've uh was getting into um relating to you know the aspects of the world anti-communist league that i've talked about in this series and um more recently i've come to realize or appreciate or maybe that's the wrong word but the extent to which it seems like the victims of communism memorial foundation uh i feel like it's kind of arguably not necessarily the successor but a successor of the u.s components of the world anti-communist league because well to start it was co-founded by um is a big new Brzezinski for one thing, but two, more importantly, Lev Dobriansky and Lee Edwards, who um, were, of course, both in the leadership positions of the uh, American Council for World Freedom, and among other mm-hmm. things, just always two very important people who have been listening to this whole series by now will know both of those names well, um, but who also I just realized John Singlaub. Okay, John Singlaub turns 100 years old this year. Um, he is uh, named as an advisor or on the advisory board or committee of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Lee Edwards is the uh, former chairman. E- evil, the- evil, evil never <laughs> dies, does it, Moss? I just had to no, I guess enough. not. No, um, man, that dude's doing push-ups right now. He's like the Keith Richards of the Cold War. He's, he's going to live to be 120. And he will have earned it. (laughs) In 2019, as I was first kind of waking up to the OUNB's continued existence, I learned that um, for the first time ever, well, there was going to be this thing called, well, the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, or I'm just going to call it Victims of Communism, um, hosted a, uh, what they called the first inaugural Captive Nations Week Summit. Online, it was referred to as uh, on the website and in an article written by the who I think is the executive director, um, Marion something Smith. And he's like basically a lobbyist for um, Viktor Orban in Hungary. But um, that's a whole other thing. Uh, So I went to this inaugural Captive Nations Week summit also referred to as the captive nations coalition summit which you'll see why make i'm bringing that up making that distinction in a moment um paula dobriansky spoke i was sitting behind lee edwards and i tapped him on the shoulder and i asked if i could ask him afterwards about lev dobriansky and he seemed a little maybe surprised that someone would ask him about lev dobriansky but like he seemed. You're not I guess, supposed to know who that is. <laughs> yeah, I think he was bullshitting me, but he was like, "Yes, of course, kind of." And then he and Paula Dobriansky both left before the event ended, and so I didn't get a chance. Um, I was hoping to make it back in 2020, of course, for obvious reasons that didn't happen, and it was a Zoom webinar. Um, and so basically, okay. So one other thing, the National Captive Nations Committee was long time chaired by Lev Dobriansky. It was his little fiefdom. So was the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America. Um, and I can go on about that. But um, 
the victims of communism linked to the Heritage Foundation both seem to have really inherited, um, resume the work, carry on the work of the National Captive Nations Committee. Um, for one thing, a vice chairman of victims of communism died last year um, in January. His name was um, Matthew Ryan. Okay, no, actually, I thought I had it in front of me if I don't. But basically, someone in, uh, someone in the Ukrainian Weekly, um, the main English language Ukrainian news, Ukrainian American newspaper um, that Don mentioned earlier, and we've mentioned a number of times throughout this series, published a column that was critical of Dobryansky and referred to him as firmly in the grip of the OUNB. And so this guy who, if he was not already with the Heritage Foundation of Victims of Communism, soon would, and he then became the or at one point, he was the director of Dobryansky's National Captive Nations Committee. Um, and I think even Lee Edwards was like the secretary, too. Um, but so this guy, Matthew Ryans, writes back to the Ukraine Weekly, like, what's wrong with the OUNB? <laughs> um, and whereas, you know, most people in D.C. who may rub shoulders with these OUNB types do not acknowledge the existence of the OUNB. Um, so to me, that said something. But um, and there's still links, which I don't need to get into, um, to the Heritage Foundation and basically this right wing um, of the foreign policy establishment, including uh, Herman Perchner of the American Foreign Policy Council, who is a <clears throat> old circle member of CNP and on the board of governors, um, according to the last leak of the rosters, which was, I think, 2018, maybe. But anyways, um, so again, Captive Nations Coalition, that was 2019. 2020, um, I want to say October, just before the election, the new uh, iteration, the fourth iteration, is it, of the captive, or not captive, the Committee for Present Danger, China, which is, uh, as I understand, spearheaded by uh, Bannon, Steve Bannon and Frank Gaffney, who's got this Islamophobic think tank, the Center for Security Policy. Frank Gaffney's think tank, um, well, you know, when Trump made that infamous speech about, you know, it's time for a shutdown of Muslims coming to the United States until we can figure out what's going on, he was reading from press release that went on to cite this bogus survey or study by the Center for Security Policy that said something like, a majority of Muslim Americans want Sharia law. Um, so that's what he's re referencing. He's saying we don't until we figure out what's going on with this thing. That's like it's it's based off of this bullshit research by Frank Gaffney's think tank. Yeah, the CSP so, was like one of the pretty much the principal uh, agency promoting the Muslim ban. Um, CSP is also kind of interesting as it was another one of these sort of successor groups, in this case, to um, the American Security Council. Um, and Gaffney was also, I believe, a big figure in Committee on the Present Danger Mach 3, which was like mm -hmm. the really anti-Islamic um, one, uh, which should really come as a surprise. <laughs> Wait, you guys were talking about a CSP earlier, right? Isn't that, is that a different CSP? Or am I mixing up acronyms? Easily done. I think or we CIS, were about what you said. Oh, CIS, yeah. Yeah, Different. there were there, there was four com committees on the present danger. So there were two that was kind of based off the Cold War. 
well, the, the first one was basically yeah, well the first one really kind of initiated the cold war it was basically like set up to justify the expense of it uh, to both the american public and the establishment um the second one was mainly spearheaded by the cmp and reagan um and you could you could actually say it's a kind of a other offshoot of the world anti-communist league well, the second the one thir- was also like instrumental in launching the neoconservative movement too that was kind of like the other uh characteristic of the second one that's really significant from a historical perspective it was the first time what we could now think of as the neocons kind of got a major platform and the third one was the war on terror and the fourth one's on china now the second the third and the fourth iterations of the committee of present danger uh all have had members of the cmp uh, strongly make making up their rosters and the current one of course you know council <coughs> national policy members bannon council for national policy member frank gaffney uh council for national policy member r james woolsey council for national policy member who was in this in the infamous inner circle of the cmp which was called the arlington group uh, and is also supposedly the mentor to the paypal mafia uh, and that would be one rod d martin the futurist uh, is also a part of it, too, as well. Uh, so is uh, Lieutenant General uh, Thomas McInerney. Of course, he's been, you know, pushing the, um, uh, yeah, the conspiracies around America. Dominion uh, and everything here lately. You have uh, Robert McEwen. Uh, he's executive director of the CMP and former member of Congress from Ohio. Uh, you have, um, uh, I'm trying to remember one. There's one more. Uh, Joy- Jerry Boykin. Uh, Boykin's mm. also CMP. Uh, you know, uh, oh, the so Florida Priory of the Knights of Malta. Yeah, part of the uh, Morning, closely associated with Morning Star Ministries of Rick Joyner. Yep. So, you know, you have many of these. Uh, you have uh, William Bennett, uh, Council for National Policy member, former Secretary of Education, and former drug czar, drug czar under, uh, under um, uh, um, uh, George H.W. Bush, who, by the way, talk about the PayPal ma- Mafia, uh, Peter Thiel. Uh, when he was uh, a freshman in college, wrote for Bill Bennett. Um, Good Lord. Is that guy still around? Good heavens. Bill Bennett? Yeah, he's still around. Yeah. Uh, okay. So since it's like John the, said the second, earlier, the, uh, the evil uh, always has naturally long Yeah, it, it, it never, never dies. Uh, um, so uh, losers, w- winners don't use drugs. Um, but um, <laughs> I digress. But, uh, so, yeah, you know. It's, it's the it's, human it's, blood, John. Well, well <sighs> no, I just agree with Carmel. Let's be real here, okay? Um, but, you know, I just it's interesting that all the, the sec from the second committee of present danger onward, it's just been f- like full of these CMP types uh, making up a good percentage of present danger. And Steve so. Bannon was CMP, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yes, Maybe he was. He was. Yeah. Um, so, so if we're looking sorry. if we're looking at the second one real quick, uh, 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 Moss, you have Richard Millane Scapey, you have John Peter Grace. Uh, both uh, members of the CMP. You have, uh, um, you know, William J. Casey, uh, William E. Colby. Um, they were in that CMP nexus, but not necessarily. You have uh, the father of the atomic bomb, Edward Teller, who ran his own Hollywood, supposedly ran his own Hollywood sex ring uh, for young boys. Um, Teller was also a big figure in the American Security Council for years and um, also kind of a quasi-mentor later to uh, Jack Sarfati, uh, who was so big in spreading a lot of the the quantum physics stuff that's uh, so popular with the kids nowadays. Yeah. Future, you know. That is true. Uh, You got Jeannie Kirkpatrick, CMP member. Uh And you have the third iteration, which had uh, R. James Woolsey again. 
um, uh, what's his name? Um, you guys mentioned him earlier, Frank Gaffney. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, it's just a who's who of the CMP with a few uh, CFR members in there too. You know, you had uh, Larry Haas in the third iteration. Um, but it's just, it's just. I guess the next one is beating those war drums for China. Right? Yeah, I was gonna say it sounds like from what you're saying between Bannon and Gaffney and whoever else, it, it sounds like the fourth iteration is also linked to CNP. Um, oh, very much so, Moss. Very much. But so. I think I think it's also closely linked to, or at least so, um, to the Victims of Communism uh, Foundation too. Um, at least especially when it comes to this Captive Nations Coalition. So just before the election, uh, 2020, uh, I'm just going to say for the fourth iteration uh, for the Committee Present Danger China, I'm just going to say CPDC. Um, But so the CPDC launches this thing called the Captive Nations Coalition in, uh, in October 2020. And as I said, the Captive Nations Week uh, summit or whatever that Victims of Communism has been doing, 2020 would have been the second uh, annual, inaugural, second, not inaugural, second annual one. Um, and they dedicated it to the Captive Nations of China, which is a first. Uh, Trump's Captive Nations Week declaration was also um, all about China. And so it's really interesting. Um and maybe interesting is the wrong word because it's actually just pretty alarming that um, Captive Nations now is in this transformation of or rebirth of going from a principally anti-Russian lobby to an anti-China lobby and base and, you know, all about breaking up China. Um, basically, as the explicit goal of this emerging uh captive nations of China lobby, I guess you could call it, which is ironic because we talked about the so-called captive nations lobby of the 20th century that was bookended to uh, the China lobby episode. And so that would have been kind of the perfect maybe ending to that episode is the fusion of those two into a new captive nations of China lobby. But I don't think that I don't think that that was before. The election, if I'm not mistaken. So, I mean, yeah, it was. So that was before this thing had it, even it, happened. It was. And so you're talking about October. And I remember because it was raining that day. It was one of the few days when it did rain last year when we recorded the China Lobby episode. You may not remember, but Moss, you were you were definitely bringing those threads together about the Committee for Present Danger and Steve Bannon and all that. Well, no, that was that was you. That was all you. Oh, you were talking about committee for present danger. I, 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 <laughs> all right. I thought it was you, but I guess not. I anyway. appreciate you trying to give me the credit for for that, but um, I legit thought it was you. <laughs> it's been a long year. Yeah, but I think that's just wild that that um, that fusion happened. It's almost like we we didn't predict it, but it's almost kind of like we spoke it into the universe. So apologies, world. Um. But I'm I'm I want to keep an eye on this and see how because presumably I mean I do think that this is some kind of coordinated thing and that um, you know Robbie Martin I think you also uh, Keith in that China lobby episode <laughs> talked about Robbie Martin's uh, thing for Media uh, Roots Radio yeah. about 
CPDC. And um, that's that's where I was hearing about it. He did a real deep dive. I, I love that podcast. I just discovered it about a year ago. They do some great stuff. Same. Yeah. Um, it's maybe one of my new favorite podcasts also. Um, but he he describes the CPDC as kind of like the driving force behind this new Cold War with China. And um, so it'll be interesting to see how victims of communism, CPDC, uh, presumably continue to fuse together and become more clearly coordinated, especially as Captive Nations Week comes around, um, perhaps next year after hopefully uh, COVID is, you know, dealt with in this country, if that's ever going to happen. But um, yeah, I just think that's something to keep an eye on. And because it would be just wild and, you know, but also maybe not that surprising if the Biden administration, you know, basically does embrace uh, this like a new Cold War with China and continues to basically take the lead from these wacky far right groups. And, you know, actually, I, I almost forgot to mention. So the Gray Zone just came out with this uh, new article, which I've been kind of, I haven't really quite had a chance to read the full thing yet. Um but it's about basically demonstrating that Adrian Zenz, who is the so-called China scholar uh, for victims of communism, is just a complete and total fraud. And he's also just a far-right, anti-Semitic, evangelical, crazy person who, uh, you know, just before Trump left office, uh, Mike Pompeo uh, officially accused China of genocide um, against the weaker population. And, you know, people get into this, Violence. like, <laughs> people get into this trap where it's like you either have to agree full-throatedly that there is a genocide happening and it's a new holocaust of the 21st century, or, like, you're saying that nothing is happening, which is, of course, a ridiculous uh, ultimatum foisted upon people. So it's not saying that there is no repression, but... The um, this article is laying out how this accusation of genocide, which uh, the new secretary of state for Biden, Antony uh, Blinken, has endorsed, uh, is entirely um, sourced from a paper by this guy, Adrian Zenz of the Victims of Communism, who has previously written a book about the coming rapture. And he says, you know, Jews will uh, be put, you know, those, I guess, who refuse to except the truth or whatever. He thinks he's led by God uh, against China. Um, he, he thinks that Jews are going to be put into a fiery furnace or whatever. So it, it, it's it's just, it's like, it's just amazing how, um, like I this I heard this guy on NPR the other day. Um, he's He's really getting this recognition as like the China expert uh, when it comes to, uh, like, charges of genocide and um, against China. And it's you don't have to be uh, a China expert, which I'm certainly not by even the tiniest bit, um, 
but you don't have to be an expert to see that, you know, the U.S. doesn't really care if there's a genocide or not. It's just, it's all to serve this new Cold War rhetoric. Yeah, and the Uyghurs Muslims? Hey, well, I thought, yeah. you, I thought you guys would like that, right? <laughs> and so that's, that's the most, that's like one of the other layers of really crazy thing is that Frank Gaffney and this extremely anti-Islamophobic, or not anti-Islamophobic, just Islamophobic um, think tank is closely linked to, is basically behind the so-called Captive Nations Coalition of China, which is basically saying we have to break up China um, to save the Uyghurs and all the other, um, and to liberate the submerged nations or captive nations of China, because I guess because if you do that, then apparently everything will be good again. Um, but, you know, the ABN and the captive nations lobby of the 20th century was, uh, it was not that, uh, they didn't go to such great lengths to to, uh, to obscure the fact that they were pretty much agitating for World War Three. I mean, throughout the Cold War, they went from it went from saying World War Three is inevitable and basically necessary to saying we're the only people who can stop World War Three. So, um, you know, so I mean, yeah, I don't think I have to spell out really any further why. That's all kind of alarming, um, but it does seem like this uh, new captive nation slash China lobby. Uh, I mean, I think there's yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of uh, a, I think a relatively pretty strong argument to be made that uh, this is kind of like a successor of the World Anti-Communist League. It's almost like you have two different kind of success. You know, it's like you've got the the captive nation stuff becomes the anti-China stuff, and then the the internationalism, right-wing internationalism, becomes this neo-Nazi network in a way. It's like these two major components of the World Anti-Communist League spun off into and adapted to the 21st century. Right, but their forebears in in both cases are are the the old wackle networks. And in like neoconservatism, you know, being sort of revived and dusted off for the next war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and with the Biden administration being so hawkish, you know, it's not, um, you know, there is a real threat, I think, of the Biden administration having some kind of relationship with these entities. Uh, it was the the de facto ambassador of Taiwan was invited to the inauguration and that's the first time the representative of Taiwan has been invited since the U.S. stopped recognizing Taiwan. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm forgetting. But there's been other stuff that's indicated that the U.S. is, you know, wants to make a stink about Taiwan again. Um, and I guess one last thing I'll say when it comes to the WACA legacy is uh, when it comes to Ukrainian nationalists, a lot of, well, not say a lot, but a number of Ukrainian uh, nationalists from the diaspora, Ukrainian Americans, Ukrainian Australians who attended um, WACL and ABN conferences, went on later to become leaders of uh, 
the Ukrainian American, Ukrainian Australian community. Um, in 1978, the ABN was represented at the youth conference of the World Anti-Communist League Congress in 1978 in DC by this guy, Oskol Dozinski, who is you know now basically the man behind the curtain, so to speak, when it comes to the OUNB network in the United States. And um, I've come to realize in the past, like, I don't know, year or so that the OUNB really is operating more or less like a criminal organization in New York in particular. Um, and the uh, elders of the Ukrainian-Australian community, you know, uh, there are some who attended the, some of whom, if not most of whom, have passed away by now, you know, attended ABN and WACL conferences in uh, Japan, for example, um, and uh, they, Ukraine Australians were staffing a uh, ABN had a apparently had a mission or like a permanent delegation in Taiwan. I want to say from the late 50s through like the early to mid 60s, and so um, so yeah, I think in a lot of different ways the World Anti Communist League's you know legacy is uh, here to stay. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. Sadly, as it is, um, especially with the recent developments that are uh, currently unfolding in regards to China, it is majorly concerning. Well, uh, Don, it is now your turn, sir. Yeah, my my turn. Okay, well, I've got a bit to say here on this, so please indulge me if you would. It It isn't every day that a former Mooney can speak his mind about these things. So to start, I'm going to bring up the name Larry Pratt. Pratt has been the executive director of uh, Gun Owners of America uh, since the late 1800s. Sorry, that's a joke. Uh, yeah, he's been he's been the guy for the GOA for some time now. And over these past few years, uh, two of Sun Myung Moon's sons, Sean and Justin, have been getting support from Pratt and his network. So what I, what I want to do here is go back to the 80s and into the 70s a little bit and lay out the overall political landscape and then bring it forward to the present that way, I think I can better answer this question about legacy, you know, et cetera. <clears throat> okay, so Pratt, back in the 80s, he was the treasurer of a very important organization <clears throat> that really, that we haven't really touched on yet in our Wackle series. Pratt was the treasurer for the Council for Inter-American Security, CIS. Um, I know that Keith brought it up. Uh, a little bit earlier, but anyway, this is going to be a <laughs> this is going to be a full address on the topic. Let's just put it this way, and and simply put, this entity was virtually at the center of public policy as it pertained to the United States' role in fighting communism in Latin America. So I'm going to give the listeners a brief rundown on CIS's origins, which will ne will necessitate that we talk, again, about a very important person in our series, that being 
Marvin Liebman. Now, Liebman and William F. Buckley, as many listeners will remember, gave the new right a, a shot in the arm when they helped orchestrate the creation of the Young Americans for Freedom, YAF, in 1960. But not so long after that, Liebman went to the UK, stayed there well over a decade, finally returning to the States, 1974-75, which is where I want to start here. So the return of Liebman at that time, it's a bit uncanny, or maybe it was just part of the plan, because this is right at the moment the new right is getting another shot in the arm. Actually, a few organizations are being created circa 74, 75, that are really going to make their impact felt getting into the 80s. So what Marvin, what, what did Marvin Liebman do then when he came back to the States after this hiatus? He focused on Latin America is what he did. He was the driving force behind the creation of the American Chilean Council, ACC, in early 1975, which was the Pinochet lobby, uh, in essence. I think that's the best way of looking at this outfit. Now, many Buckleyites, Young Americans for Freedom alum and so forth and so on, many of the early Buckley Network cadre, in other words, there were a number of these guys that were influential in the ACC. Now, the Moonies, with Neil Salonen at the helm in the US, his Freedom Leadership Foundation was also supporting the ACC. The Rising Tide, FLF's periodical, would sometimes write glowingly about the Pinochet regime. Now, right about the time the ACC was officially established in 75, this is something that Keith touched on earlier today, something else happened that year, which also relates to Latin America. The Inter-American Conference on Freedom and Security was convened that year. And this conference, it seems to me, was a key coming together of interests of the new right with those of WACL. The Panama Canal issue was in the forefront of U.S. foreign policy at that time, and the far right sure as heck didn't want to give complete control of the canal to Panama. So this conference ultimately led to the launching of the Council for Inter-American Security the following year, 1976, founded Don by Ronald I'm sorry. I'm uh, sorry, Keith. Can- can I just interrupt real quick for our listeners? They can go back two episodes prior where we talked about Wackle in the 70s, and we did a, a little deeper of a dive uh, on on that that conference. So just just a, a reference for the listeners. Please continue, sir. Okay, sure. So it was founded by Doxi in 76, and with and then was led by Lynn Bucci the following year onward meaning into the 80s. Uh, and both these guys were core YAFers. I'll have more on them later. And you'll never guess who were among those in attendance at this conference, uh, you know, the, the conference that, you know, precedes the creation of CIS. Actually, 
you probably will guess, a couple of old names from this Wackle series, Ku Cheng Kong and Lev Dobriansky, which obviously need no introduction for our loyal listeners. I read a letter that Ku wrote to Dobriansky after that conference. I found in Dobriansky's archives, thanks to Moss sending that to Keith and then forwarding it on to me. And it's clear that these guys had talked at that conference about the formal entry or membership of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America into WACL, the UCC officially becoming a member organization of WACL, in other words, which is quite significant, really. So we can right, see. But do, you, from, do you remember what year that would have been, roughly? The conference was 75, Moss. Okay, interesting. Because that's before the official OUNB takeover, but I guess it, they mostly did control it by that point. Okay. Okay, okay. sorry, just interjection. Oh, no, that's fine. Sure. So we can see from all these, what I'll call synchronicities, just how important the mid 70s were as it pertains to Latin America. Wackle and the New Right. And to further my point here, the same year, 76, you know, where CIS is officially founded, that's when Operation Condor got launched. And what country became a hub or organizational base for Condor? Well, that would be Liebman's ACC. Okay, we're talking Chile, ACC. Pinochet and his intelligence, you know, network Dina, they they were the guys that were pre- pretty much calling most of the shots uh, when you're talking about Condor here, uh, you know, so forth and so on. So make no mistake here. I mean, these first few years after Nixon's Watergate de- debacle, the new right and Wackle were well on their way to creating something in the 80s in Latin America that was going to be pretty darn brutal. Now, moving to 78, that too was a key year. That's when the American Security Council, ASC, they put together the Coalition for Peace Through Strength. This brought Generals Daniel Graham and John Siglop together, who also need no introduction. These two guys took a trip to Latin America on behalf of ACC in 1979. Uh, So long story short, that that trip, that trip would lead to increased support for all death squad activity in Central America. Now, there's another organization that got established. We're still in 1978 here. And I'm thinking now that this entity has almost as much significance as what the ACC formed with Graham and Singlop. But, and it's almost certain that this organization has a connection also with Latin America death squad activity, Condor activity, etc. And the name of this outfit is the National Defense Council Foundation, NDCF. And the founder? is Andy Messing. Okay, Andy Messing. This guy's got a bio that just hits you right in between the eyes. And I don't have time to get into it all here, but he's got a fairly high level military background. 
And he's going to end up being one of the big players at CIS. He was a Wackle guy, an AC, an ASC guy, you name it. But he first caught my attention when I saw his name come up in Ted Shackley's Iran-Contra deposition. Shackley, of course, for those who may not know, he was one of the all-time CIA mercenary leaders or whatever. So Shackley, under oath, mentioned that one day, Barbara Studley of Geomilitech strolls into his consulting office and she comes in with her lawyer and messing. And when Shackley is further questioned, he says he knows messing from the conservative caucus, which is a key new right organization, as you guys know. I saw the conservative caucus all over the place when I was researching ex-Mooney Gary Jarman in Jerry Falwell's archive. Messing and Jarman must have been equated with each other, if not more. It actually looks like Messing and Jarman worked together at the American Conservative Union. So I guess you could say, <laughs> I'm sorry, that Messing was really messing with my head at that point. Ha ha, humor doesn't get much better. Sorry, guys. So what really started to crystallize for me, researching Messing and finding the Shackley connection, is that you've got a number of these career military intelligence guys that overlap with the new right and into the religious right as well, which is going to be really apparent moving into the 80s. And, you know, just to mention more in what Keith talked about, you know, with, with the Christic Institute and Daniel Sheehan, I went through the shadow government book you know, that was put out by the Christic Institute. That was one of my homework assignments and goes into what, what was officially called the enterprise. I think that was a word that you were forgetting, Keith. It was called the enterprise, the name that was given to this so-called shadow, you know, governing, you know, psyop Secret. body, we'll call it or whatever. And, you know, for, for my take on this i mean i've got every reason to believe that what i gleaned out of the book and a couple of other sources that the new right through people like messing were in on this operation it, it's really it's really kind of interesting stuff i mean i know that that information in some sense has to be taken with a grain of salt depending on what you're addressing but as with any book there's a lot that you're going to glean that's actually accurate, correct information. And through some of my other sources, you know, it even link, links Richard Vigory into this. And if we rank, uh, sorry, link Richard Vigory, then the Moonies can't be far behind. And I thought, you know, I mean, I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to tell you when I when I think of my days of being a full fledged Mooney. You know, and I thought that Moon was the second coming of Jesus. You know, in the 80s, I was like faithful, doing everything. I mean, when I talk about this stuff, I mean, gosh, I just want to rant, but I, I'm just going to keep moving on here. So let's get back to Larry Pratt and CIS. So 
So now we're in the 80s, okay? And up to this point, I've tried to show that the Buckley-Lieben network, doing what it did in 1974 and the years ahead, you know, leading to the crowning of the Reagan revolution, as we like to call it, there, there was a very clear focus all along the way towards Latin America. In other words, when you start to break down in earnest what reach this wackle milieu had moving into the Reagan years with the new right, the religious right, the Chile lobby, the China lobby, the moon organization, so forth and so on. All these facets of anti-communism were feeding right into the CIS, each and every one of them. And they ended up hitting on all cylinders during Iran-Contra, which is where Larry Pratt sits, the guy supporting the Moon Gun Church as we speak today. So it almost goes without saying that if we're to look at all the key figures that were associated with CIS, it won't be a surprise to anyone to find a virtual who's who of old time original Buckleyites. As, and, you know, just as a digression here, as our faithful listeners to this Wackle series would know, I have taken great pains to tie the beginnings of the Moonies in the U.S. with the Buckley Lieben Network, which brings in the likes of the first YAF chairman, Douglas Caddy, and future, quote, KCIA moon agent, Tung Sung Park. These two guys did anti-communist work together when they were at Georgetown as students, which just so happens to be where Lev Dobriansky was, okay? And I got to say something else here. I was reading Caddy's autobiography a few days ago, and boy, I'm glad I did. When Caddy was talking about his childhood, I found out that Caddy went to high school in New Orleans in the same part of town, the French Quarter area, that Lee Harvey Oswald was attending high school. They were essentially the same age. But that's not the shocker. Caddy was an anti-communist kid, even in high school. And by attending a couple of events that had McCarthyism spewing all this anti-communist rhetoric, etc. You'll never guess who Caddy got to meet as a high schooler. Drum roll, please. He met Guy Bannister. Yeah, that Guy Bannister. That I settles mean, it. YAF did JFK, man. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm on board. I mean, come on. And, and Caddy goes on to say that he gave a public speech at the same event that Bannister did in 1959, which is when Young Un Kim of the Moonies, the first Korean Moonie, settled in the U.S. I mean, let's look at this. Caddy, 
the year after he meets Bannister, goes to college and works right off the bat, literally, with Tung Sung Park, okay, at Georgetown, okay, and some accounts say that these guys were roommates. Tung Sung Park becomes clearly connected to Bo Hipok by the early 60s, okay, the KCIA connection. Bo Hipok, in turn, was recruited into the Moonies by Young Un Kim. I mean, can we even imagine? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you one further, Keith. Can we even imagine that Guy Bannister of JFK assassination fame, that he is somehow involved with the op that brings the first Mooney to the United States? I mean, that's crazy town. Or is it? Moon over Camelot. <laughs> okay. I mean, this is almost as good as my Walter Profeta Korean ambassador find that connects to the American friends of the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations. We're talking 1953 now. Listeners will have to go back to our Mooney podcast for that. And speaking about ABN in all this, I just said that Lee Harvey Oswald, the JFK murder patsy, who just happened to be going to high school in New Orleans in a part of town fairly close to where Douglas Caddy was attending high school at the same time. Well, do you know, do you guys remember who Oswald met at the dock in New Orleans when Oswald came back from Russia? Spazrenkin. You got that right. Another ABN guy. Okay. So it looks even more now that we have an ABN Mooney Milieu mystery on our hands going all the way back to the beginning. So I'm glad I got that in, even though it was quite a digression. I hope you guys appreciated that. Okay. Now, getting back on track here. And did did we ever talk about... In the series, how Dobryansky tried to uh, to uh, pin Bandera's assassination on, or they, they he said that Lee Harvey Oswald was trained at the same like KGB assassin center as the guy yeah, who killed you know, Bandera. That's, that's almost Maybe the whole podcast. That, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry to interrupt, Moss. No, no, that, no, you're I, not. I'm interrupting you. <laughs> yeah, no, but that no, but that that's almost a whole little uh, segue on it all in itself. How. You know, the the Bandera murder, uh, I'd love to talk to you more about that privately. Maybe we'll get to that at some point, you know. But, yeah, there's there's a lot there, okay, that needs to be unpacked. So, anyway, uh, getting back on track here. Um, here's a rundown of all the CIS luminaries, okay. Um, the founder of CIS was Ronald Doxai, which I mentioned earlier. He joined YAF in the late 60s and became a big-time YAF leader in the early 70s when Mooney, Neil Salonen, and company were working closely with YAF. Then there's Lynn Bucci, who I also brought up earlier. Bucci worked with Marvin Liebman at the American Chilean Council and shared office space with Neil Salonen's mentor, Lee Edwards, also a member of ACC, someone that Moss knows very well, very important, will 
Um, and I've talked, I've, and I haven't really talked myself all that much about Edwards throughout this Wackle series. But make no mistake, Moss is going to be in agreement. He was always around the progression or advancement of the Mooney operation, just like Richard Vigory was. But in about Edwards, Lee Edwards? Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry, just checking. Yeah. Yeah, Neil Salonen said he was one of the most top, he was the, one of the top four mentors of his, Edwards. But, you know, in Edwards' case, you know, different from Vigory, he has this very close relationship with Dobriansky, pretty much from the beginning of the American chapter of WACL, the ACWF. So you almost have to think here that Edwards served as a liaison, quote unquote, between the Dobriansky ABN milieu and the Mooney New Right milieu. That's my thought here. Now, getting back to Bucci, he would go on to become a key CAUSA member. In fact, he and Mooney Gary Jarman helped organize CAUSA's first conference in North America in 83. Bucci CIS also attended the World Media Conference, which is a Mooney front. Singlob also attended the World Media Conference. And very important here, Lynn Bucci was also an original YAF member going back all the way to the early 60s. He would have known fellow YAFer Douglas Caddy, okay? Now, there's Roger Fontaine. Okay, he's part of CIS. He's the son-in-law of Ray Klein, who needs no introduction. Both Fontaine and Klein worked at CSIS, which had its offices at Georgetown. We're back to Dobriansky again. Dobriansky worked with Klein at the U.S. Global Security Council, another organization deeply connected to the Moonies. And then there's Andy Messing. There he is again. We saw how he was connected to ex-Mooney Gary Jarman at ACU. And then there's Larry Pratt. We're back to him now. He also worked at the American Conservative Union with Messing, with Jarman. And Pratt hired Richard Vigory's company to help with Gun Owners of America. This is like going round and round in circles, boys. Vigory, of course, being the man that I think was Gary Jarman's handler. Vigory also had worked with Bohe Pak when Bach, when excuse me, when Pak was getting his Mooney operation going, getting it off the ground in the mid-60s. Now we got other CIS Mooney links like Joseph Cherba and Gordon Sumner. Uh, they were both members of CIS and CAUSA. I brought them up in our last podcast. And now, now we're going to get to some people that I'm going to talk about that will bring us up to the present in a moment. But staying in the 80s, just for a little longer here, we've got Warren Hatch and Dan Burton. They're CIS connected. These two guys were lifelong congressmen from their perspective states. Burton was the vice chair of CIS at one point, and Hatch from Utah 
he was an avid supporter of Boone. Hatch also did a lot of work with the American Conservative Union in the late 70s. So he could have known ex Mooney Gary Jarman even back then. So these are some of the most important CIS wackle Mooney connections, I would say. So now, finally, let's bring this all up to the present. Let's get to all these wackle related remnants and how they're connected to Sun Young Moon now. Or shall I say the Moon family, the widow, the sons, etc. Well, I started out with Larry Pratt. He follows the work of the two sons that run the so-called gun church in Northeast Pennsylvania. But he's just the beginning. We also have Alan Gottlieb. He supports Sean and Justin Moon, the gun boys. Gottlieb basically followed the same path that Larry Pratt did. He got on the Second Amendment private militia train or whatever. Gottlieb's connection to the Moonies in the 80s was through Bohepoc's American Freedom Coalition and by extension, the Wise Use Movement, which had strong Second Amendment elements to it. Gottlieb, he's also the current chairman of the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms, and was also the founder of the Second Amendment Foundation. But Gottlieb's claim to fame with the Moon Boys, he, he was the keynote speaker at their biggest event. Gottlieb, he's also a YAFer, another Buckleyite, in other words, and worked at the ACU at the same time ex-Mooney Gary Jarman did. Gottlieb, he's also CNP, CNP member, just like Pratt was. So Gottlieb, he's got a little resume on him, doesn't he, guys? Okay. Now, who else can I mention here? Well, there's former Ambassador Alan Keyes. He spoke at the same Mooney gun event, different year, I believe, the same event that Alan Gottlieb spoke at. Now, Keyes was a Council of National Policy member. He also was an aide to Jean Kirkpatrick when she was the UN ambassador. Kirkpatrick, for her part, she supported the Mooney's Washington Times when the Times organized a fund for the Nicaraguan Contras. And then getting back to Keyes here, he spoke at the Mooney's World Media Conference back in 89. And in the 90s, Keyes spoke at a Moon-sponsored Christian Coalition Conference where many of the religious right were in attendance. And looking, and looking further at Keyes, he, he worked closely with Brent Bozell III at the World Freedom Foundation, WFF. You know what? Uh, Go ahead, Keith, what, if you got something. What, just real quick, what should also be said about Alan Keyes is he's an absolute maniac. That's <laughs> okay. He once described himself as a political abortion, and, uh, and, and that's a very quotable quote. So... Okay, fair enough. So, um, okay, so Brent Bozell III. So before 
before founding WFF, Bozell worked at NICPAC with Terry Dolan, you know, where, where Terry Dolan, you know, headed things up, you know, founded it, et cetera. Dolan was closely acquainted with Bo Hepak, having been on Cowes' advisory board, and then Spitz Chanel of Western Goals fame and a pro protege of Dolan. Chanel also had a connection to Bo Hepak through Cowza. Chanel worked with Bozell III at NIPPAC, okay? And get this, Bozell was the nephew of William F. Buckley and had worked at the American Conservative Union just like ex-Mooney Gary Jarman did. And Jarman, yeah, it just keeps going, right? And Jarman, something I haven't mentioned about him yet, as the Washington, D.C. political lobbyist for the Christian voice, Jarman would have almost surely had a working relationship with Larry McDonald, founder of Western Goals, since McDonald had served on the Congressional Advisory Council for the Christian voice. Mm. You know, I'm telling you. Oh, you know, the dot connecting, it just gets dizzying. I said that before. Okay, moving on, guys. We also have Oliver North. He's been supporting the progeny of Moon and is another CNPer. Okay, I think John mentioned that. And then to round things out, at the Mooney Gun Church, we have seen the support coming from Steve Bannon and the Trump family. Both those names speak for themselves. So those Moon Gun Boys, they know how to network. I'll give them that. What do, you think, John, what do you think, John? You there, John? No, no, they do. They, they do. They do, Don. You're 100% right about that. I mean, I did a show covering the Rod of Iron Ministries, which are the Moon Boys uh, doing their, 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 uh, their, they're using their guns, their AR-15s as rods of iron uh, from, you know, from the book of, of Revelation, uh, trying to misappropriate um, that book. Um, yeah. They should have took a warning that for whomever does that uh, spends a attorney in hell. But I digress. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if there was another person uh, that was there um, at the uh, Rods of Iron um, events that they were holding, which is one um, Craig Sawman Sawyer. Oh uh, yeah. Craig and Craig Sawyer, of course, was former um, bodyguard or head up some bodyguard units for John Negroponte and Hillary Clinton. Uh, when they would go over to the Middle East. Um, and, uh, you know, he's been funded by InfoWars. He made a documentary called Contraland, which did finally come out. I mean, and his wife, and his, wife, his uh, daughter was abducted, um, was kidnapped by gang members. That did happen. Um, so, I, you know, I, as far as Saw Man, you know, I have some, some questions about who he chooses to affiliate with or the narratives you know that he tries to push kind of like the pizza game narratives and everything but he still has had you know tragedy in his life um and at least his documentary did come out and about exposing uh human trafficking i have to give him credit for credit due he didn't finish it um but he was at the uh the rods of iron ministries uh conference which i did a, a, sh a show on um, and you mentioned the CMP Allen Keys was definitely, and you actually sent me that information, Don. You're the one who 
who put yeah. it on to me. And they actually the uh the they, the the uh, moon uh boys would show up um at, at on uh Stephen K Bannon's um war room and give an interview to Bannon and Bannon was platform boosting them. So it's just it's just one, you know, all these people are connected, okay? As Lee Veltman would say, links and connections, right? I mean, they're all connected. Right. So. Well, uh, I'm going to keep moving on because we've got some other parts of the Moon organization here, okay? Because the Moonies, since Moon died, basically split up into three factions. But besides the gun church, we've got the mainstream faction, which is led by Moon's widow, Hawk Shahan. And there's also the oldest son, Preston, Preston Moon. He's got his thing going as well. So since Moon's widow has most of the current Mooney faithful, quote unquote, I'm going to talk about her next. Now, she's been garnering support recently from Trump's presidential spiritual advisor, Paula White, whether she's advising him or oh. not. Now, I'm sorry? said oh i can't stand paula white she's do apostolic reformation she's just an abysmal person yeah right well there you have it he's so i'm so uh she's one okay and mrs moon has in her backyard neocon dick cheney one of my favorites cheney it's been known for years now that he's one of the select few within the very secret continuity of government cog and a cancer for national policy member, John. Uh, oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Then, then we've got another former vice president, Dan Quayle. He was a YAFer. Both Quayle and Cheney spoke at this online conference, Zoom meeting conference, for Mrs. Moon. In, in fact, a few of that I'm mentioning here that support Mrs. Moon... They support her in this online fashion, but in some very tangible ways as well. So uh, moving on, we also have the radical right congressman, Newt Gingrich. She's met Mrs. Moon in person and has spoken on her behalf on a few occasions. Gingrich, he got his start in Congress in the late 70s. And one of the most important mentors for him back then was new right powerhouse figure Paul Weyrich. And Mrs. Moon, she's even getting support from an old, <clears throat> excuse me, an old supporter of her deceased husband. We're talking Orrin Hatch again. Hatch contributes to and or advises the Moon organization's current number one political front, that being the Universal Peace Federation, UPF. And in Hatch's early career, his congressional assistant was none other than Ronald Doxai, who I mentioned earlier. Doxai, I mentioned, was YAF, Wackle, the founder of CIS. How about them apples? And let me rant here some more on Doxai. Doxai became New York chairman of YAF in the late 60s, eventually becoming national chair in 73. Doxai was from Buckley's home state, 
okay, New York. So I would imagine that Dockside was on very good terms with Mr. Buckley and probably was guided by Buckley on a regular basis. I mean, after all, John Buckley, William F.'s nephew, was a leader in YAF right alongside Doxai, in a manner of speaking, in the early 70s, going into the late 70s. And then of, there's this close relationship that YAF has with the Moonies, and particularly so in the early 70s. And I'm not done yet on Doxai. He would go on to become a member of the Political Action Committee of the Bayer Corporation, which has its origins or roots in Nazi Germany. The Bayer Corporation was a subsidiary of the infamous IG Farben cartel. And that's pretty significant, gentlemen, if you ask me. Okay, enough of my rant on Doxai. That felt pretty good, actually. So rounding things out, as far as support for Mrs. Moon in our current times, we have arguably the most important person in the entire Moon Widow Network. That would be Dan Burton. We're back to Burton again. Burton currently holds a very high position in the Universal Peace Federation, which I just mentioned. Burton was also a key member of the Council of Inter-American Security, CIS, and CNP, he was also a CNP member. And then to finish up here on Mrs. Moon's supporters, I have it on good authority that former VP Mike Pence will be speaking at Mrs. Moon online conference in the very near future. And guess what, guys? That makes three former vice presidents. We've just hit the trifecta. Lucky us. Man, doesn't get any better, does it? I'm sorry. I, I, You guys always have to humor me here. All right, I'm almost done. Let's talk Preston Moon, who runs the other faction. This won't take long. Now, with the older Moon son, Preston, I'm sure he's got a number of people in his camp that would be worth mentioning here if I just knew who they actually were. In other words, these people haven't come up on my radar yet. But one person I can single out is someone that we all know. I'm talking Edwin Fulner now. When Sun Myung Moon moved to the U.S. in 1971-72, and when Moon met with congressmen just weeks after his arrival, Philip Crane was the master of ceremonies, as it were, for that meeting. And Crane's congressional assistant at that time? Yep, you guessed it, Edwin Fulner. And it wasn't so long after that quote-unquote historic meeting, historic to me anyway, being an ex-Mooney as I am, Fulner went on to head the Heritage Foundation, where Mooney Michael Warder found himself later after leaving the cult. And Fulner's boss at Heritage, the guy that brought him in, was Paul Weyrich. There's Weyrich again. And it's known that Fulner was a U.S. Le Cercle agent. Fulner also has his origins in the Buckley Network, 
being a byproduct of the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists, ISI, which worked closely with YAF. And Fulner currently, and Moss is going to love this and already knows, Fulner currently is the chairman of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. And thanks, Moss, for all your insights on that foundation. Wow, no, I didn't, know, I didn't know that about that, uh, that connection. Well, you know, you know it now. <laughs> That's, and, yeah, and what, yeah, it just, I mean, this just gets crazy. And we, but it's predictable, right, Keith? Anyway, and when we, and when we go back in our Wackle series, we have Philip Crane, a mentor to Fulner. We have Crane, Ed Dorinsky. Dorinsky was also at that meeting when Moon moved to the U.S. Both Crane and Dorinsky had very long, and particularly Dorinsky had very long working relationships with Lev Dobriansky. Dobriansky worked with Fulner, both key figures, okay, in the history of the Victims of Communism organization. So, you know, to kind of bring bring this to a close, I just had to get some last licks in on Dobriansky, okay? Because, you know, Mosh, you know how I feel about him. Yeah, well, definitely. Yeah, well, guys, I think I've done about all that I can here to show that there's a far-right, wackle-related, wackle-milieu, wackle-whatever moon legacy here. Something that is with us now, and therefore, it's something that we have to contend with. And all I can say in closing is that I am so grateful that I left the Mooney psychological prison and I find myself doing what I'm doing now with you. And I, I guess I better let somebody else have the floor. I hope you guys, I hope you guys like that. Can I ask you, um, do you, would you agree that the victims of communism would then seem to be like arguably the like de facto U.S. This is the de facto successor of the U.S. chapter chapter? of the World Anti-Communist League? Well, there's absolutely a lot to support that line of thinking. I haven't gone down that rabbit hole or, you know, taken a, 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 a stream of information or a thread of information to, to try and come to that conclusion on my own. But, hey, you know, I'm certainly not, not going to refute it. And like I say, I think there's a lot to support it. I, I'm kind of feeling the same way, and it just it occurred to me since I stopped talking that you know maybe w- the, with victims of communism trying to make a comeback for Captive Nations Week and now turn it into China, it's like maybe their goal is to try to symbolically you know the whole point of Captive Nations Week was to symbolically commit the United States to um, liberating all the captive nations, but chief among them breaking up the Soviet Union and not just one day uh, bringing back the Russian Empire, you know, trading uh, basically like one czar for another uh, in their eyes. And so maybe the goal is that they're going to use Captive Nations Week to symbolically uh, commit the United States to 
breaking up China is the final goal of some kind of new Cold War showdown. Right. And that would just be, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe well, that's Wackle's yeah. final. Well, the balkanization of China obviously is a huge focus for, you know, th- those that we that you guys mostly have touched on uh, yourselves. So, yeah, I hear is it you. Some of the Moonies, do you know? Like, is that something they are? The balkanization of China, you know, frankly, I haven't I haven't really gone down that road. OK, I mean, that that's a whole. <laughs> That's a whole homework assignment that it's just not within my purview uh, at this point. You know, you can only do so much, right? I mean, that's why it takes a panel like us to to cover, you know, all the different angles. And we still ain't covering everything. Uh, that's, that's a fact. There's, that, there's a cutting room floor like a mile wide on this this series, and it's like 20 hours. Whew. <sighs> I don't mean to sound like I know what I'm talking about on this China stuff, but I guess I'm just realizing as of pretty relatively recently that maybe that is kind of like a major thing that we've not really addressed among, among you know, as Keith is saying, so many other potential subjects. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, just look at some of the signals coming out. I mean, obviously, the Atlantic Council, you know, just kind of released the... It's the longest telegram, a play on uh, the long telegram from Moscow sent by George Keenan uh, in 46 that advocated containment. Um, you know, and I mean, this was, you know, I mean, a major force behind bringing Biden to power, the Atlantic Council, that is. So, I mean, again, it just kind of raises the possibility that, you know, at least part of Trump was to provide the, you know, liberal establishment personified by the uh, Atlantic Council cover for uh, taking a more militant uh, approach towards China. Um, so, Don, uh, did you guys have anything else to uh, add on that note? Oh, no, I, I've said my piece. Uh, I'm glad I was able to get that all in because. Uh... All right. Well, John, you're up next, sir. All right, I don't really have much too much to add than what we said this whole entire series or what you find gentlemen have put forth, other than um, a lot of this is the uh, the new right, the secret right um, that has been hidden from many people who um, have tried to um, research conspiracies for the lack of a better term or research the world order or research the mysterious power players. Um, because majority of people within the quote unquote truth movement, um, that has tried to bring us these, this information, uh, researchers that people, uh, may have trusted or in the past or still do, uh, like Alex Jones or Paul Craig Roberts or, um, Joel Skousen or, 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 um, uh, Bill Cooper or, um, uh, Stanley Monteith. Uh, a lot of them have connections to uh, the Council for National Policy and the uh, Hidden Right. Um, so because of that, a lot of this research into these nefarious groups, whether it's the World Anti-Communist League, uh, whether it's the John Byrd Society, whether it's the Council for National Policy, whether it's Law Circla, uh, where, whether it's the American Security Council, um, has relatively, um, you know, most people who think that they are, quote unquote, awake 
to the world order uh, don't know any of this history uh, because these people have steered them away from uh, this information of how nefarious these groups are, what they've been involved with, um, you know, you know, over over the decades. Um, and, and because of that, uh, um, meet a few people actually really know about it. Um, I'm glad that, you know, all of us here have been trying to bring to light um, the, you know, the information uh, concerning these groups and what they've been up to, uh, whether, you know, it's, it's the many wars uh, throughout the world, uh, you know, Latin American death squads, uh, the Franklin scandal, um, you know, the Ron Contra affair, um, the, you know, involvement of, of, of the Council for National Policy, which, you know, Wackel was a front runner to um, for like 9-11, for example. You know, the, 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 these operations are still um, going on today. The names of the group have been changed, uh, but you still see the same same players that were involved in these groups that are still alive, uh, still being involved with the modern representation of these groups. Um, and you got new blood in, in as well, too. Um, still continuing uh, this push for the secret right. Um, and, and you have, you know, you have the secret left, you have the secret right. You know, you can argue the secret left isn't so secret anymore because everybody out there covering the Bilderberg Group and uh, the Council of Foreign Relations. Um, maybe not so much the Atlantic Council. Uh, however, the Atlantic Council seems to have some weird mix of, of uh, CMP and CFR together. Um, I mean, you have uh, the Hunt Air uh, Hunt family heir uh, being in the Atlantic Council, for example. Um, so it's just it's just interesting. This is the continua- continuation of a part of the world order that few know about. Um, and they control a lot of it. They've been involved with a lot of things that have made uh, other uh, people and researchers and people that are woke to the truth sick for many years. But they're told only it's only this side. You know, don't look at the world anti-communist league. They're fighting communism. Uh, don't look at the American Security Council. Uh, don't look at the John Birch Society. They're just patriots. Don't look at the Council for National Policy or whatever, whatever is the Council for National Policy or whatever is La Circle. You know, uh, don't look at any of that. Uh, just focus on the globalist side. Um, and that's allowed them to provide cover for each other. Both sides of the world order, I believe, are connected and they're kind of like a mob. You talked about that before. Uh, recluse um and um yeah they might have some disagreements of how they think the world should go um you can make it the argument between i guess i'm going to use uh, one of their frameworks which is communism versus fabian socialism except the secret right or fabian socialist in a lot of ways um but i digress in that point but they're all a lot of them are hypocrites they're all hypocrites i mean you have as uh the work you know that don diligent has done to bring, uh, you know, in, in depth uh, research about the Unification Church and the Moonies, for example, all these secret right people, uh, for the most part, um, they 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 were they had no problem taking the moon money. They had no problem, you know, they proclaim Christianity. They they pro- uh, uh, proclaim a Judaism. Um, I mean, the Council for National Policy even says itself it's a, a a Judeo-Christian organization. Whatever that means, as in very ambiguous. Uh, but yet they're going around and um, doing uh, these things they claim, which is the best interest for the American people or even the best interest for fellow Christians. In reality, they're doing some of the most horrific things uh, imaginable, you know, drug trafficking, human trafficking, arm trafficking, death squads, 
uh, all in the name of what? For people to continue getting rich and for power moves and power players to continue being in power. Um, so that's what it ends up being uh, overall. And it's quite sad because they've done a great job of hiding this uh, from people who even think that they're awake. Um, and that's the state of where we got today with the right-left paradigm being divided more than ever and the QAnon operation and people fi- falling for uh, uh, multi-generational warfare at this point, you know, um, and it, it's quite sad. And hopefully uh, through us, uh, you know, talking about the secret right, exposing it, uh, hopefully uh, some people can wake up and realize that they've been fooled. And yes, there's still people out there who've been fooled that still want to believe um, in the same conspiracy tropes that are given uh, talking points. I mean, I follow the John Birch Society on YouTube, for example, just to see what they're covering and what they're talking about. And it's the same, you know, Trump was robbed of the election. Uh, world communism is going to come out to get you. Uh, you know, this the same old stuff that they've been talking about uh, for decades when they've been in bed uh, with Scientology. Um, you know, <laughs> and the United States government, these nefarious uh, figures uh, for decades. You know, but the John Birch Society are supposed to be patriots. It's just, it's just, it just, it, 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 the hypocrisy knows no bounds. Um, so I guess in closing, Wackle's still continuing. It's the, the, the new right, uh, you know, um, new boss, same as the old boss, right? You know, uh, it, it's still going on and it still will go on. Um, and hopefully more people can uh, expose it and bring it out in the hope that maybe uh, these people will be held accountable. I mean, I've gotten cynical. I, I, no one goes to prison, uh, or very few people go to prison. Um, but uh, maybe something can happen. Who knows? Thank you for that, John. I, I love that what you're great. saying. If I could just, you know, you're you're totally right. There's like more than one side to this stuff, and like the rules of the conspiratorial content world is, you know, you can talk about the Bilderbergers, but not the talk about cfr but never the cnp always talk about the masons never the knights of malta always the israel lobby but never the china lobby or the korea lobby or the contra lobby you always talk about this conspiratorial left new world order thing but never the the right side and you never ever ever talk about the moonies and we've broken all those rules in this series and it's freaking awesome we still haven't talked about the Mormons yet, though. It's another one of the unspoken rules. Well, well, now, 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 now Stephen, though, uh, uh, um, uh, Don talked about Orrin Hatch earlier, so that's kind okay, of like okay, the Mormon okay. mafia, well, you know, Hatch, Romney, you know. <laughs> I've got CMP, plans Mormons. Of the Mormon thing in the future, so we'll try to take care of that at a later time. Yeah, and actually, that sets me up to say that Cleon Skousen. He was a he was a big moon guy. In fact, there's one photo in the Unification Church archives that show that moon is kissing the hand of Skousen. I think I sent that to you, Keith. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, anyway, you did. I forgot. Yeah, yeah. A, a, a picture is worth a thousand words. So just wanted to throw that in. All right. Well. That uh, brings you up, Keith. I know you had a, uh, some big grand finale uh, planned for us, so uh, have at it, sir. <laughs> well, 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 you can tell me on the other side of it. Uh, but uh, 
did you know that the Ramones in the 80s had a song called Bonzo Goes to Bitburg? You ever heard that song? Am I like the only punk rocker the, here? I don't know, man. Uh, I was more of a metalhead, man. I mean, by the time I got uh, into like high school, it was the era of like pop punk. Only like the jock and prep assholes really were into punk. Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. I couldn't afford the hairspray, so it was it was all punk rock for me. But yeah, the Ramones wrote a song, Bonzo Goes to Bitburg, and Frank Zappa had uh, written something as well. And it was to commemorate uh, Ronald Reagan visiting the Bitburg Cemetery in Germany, where there was like a bunch of dead SS soldiers buried. And a bunch of people around the world at the time saw it for what it was. It was kind of a salute to the fallen Nazi dead. And Reagan... Uh, played it off with the kind of gaslighting bullshit that would be like de rigueur today. You know, those young men who fought for the Third Reich were the real victims every bit as much as as the people that they slaughtered. Um, yeah, a lot of people saw it for what it was. And uh, <clears throat> and there's a reason for it, because this was the time that when the so-called new right, the conservative movement that captured and, and created this brand of conservatism in the late 50s in response to the moderate modern they used to call themselves the modern republican eisenhower rockefeller pro new deal wings of the party you know phyllis schlafly's book for uh for the goldwater campaign was called a choice not an echo what's the difference between democrats and republicans if they're both fdr you know in the tank for fdr and uh and by the 80s, they got the White House. They didn't get it in 60 or 64 with Goldwater. They didn't get it in 76 with Reagan. But by God, they got it in 1980 with Reagan. And they've never gone back into the wilderness ever since. Uh, the Reagan years were the golden age of the World Anti-Communist League. And it was the beginning of a, a continuous rise to power of the new right that really got going. They got into the into the Capitol Rotunda, like Brent Bozell's kid actually uh, was filmed in the in the January 6th thing. He was actually in there. I don't know if you guys knew that. I found that out yesterday. The fourth, Brent Bozell the fourth. Um, they've never retreated ever since then. Um, in these uh, Larry McDonald papers we got, uh, a few weeks ago. Hey, I, I wanted to say real quick. Um, I did know I covered that on we read the documents. And as soon oh, as I really? read that news story, I was like, oh, yeah. OK, great. I know that Salem, guy. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, Salem Communications, you know, Salem Media Communications, CMP. Oh, OK. Yeah. Did you know um, when, when they, they got a small tangent real quick, do you know Salem Communications uh, in their Christian section uh, for uh, uh, kids? Uh, they were uh, putting up uh, Children of God uh, music videos and stuff like that that could be purchased, um, and uh, and and you can you can spread to your um, uh, congregations. You could play them Children of God propaganda uh, that was being sold by Salem Communications and and by Bazell and Epperson and them. So well, just as an that's aside. Not- that's gross, but thank you. <laughs> uh, one thing I was surprised about in these in these CMP papers from McDonald we got is the name Roger Pearson showing up a bunch of times, you know, and it's like he'd had this, you know, he got egg on his face for being like super duper Nazi. 
but he also had his whole academic journals and all the things we talked about two episodes ago and his journal for the study of political and economics something i can't remember jsps uh you know he's shopping for a new place for a new host and the Council for National Policy, here's Larry McDonald recommending him to Woody Jenkins and some other people saying, hey, we can kind of acquire this scholarly journal with Roger Pearson and make it the CNP's scholarly journal. And yes, it'll be Roger Pearson. And yes, we all know he's got some baggage, but let's just downplay that. And there's a copy of the letter that Ronald Reagan wrote to Roger Pearson about what a great American he is. And what he, how, what, how much great stuff he'd done for the cause of freedom and all the values we hold dear. And he used to bandy that around for fundraising appeals. And there's apparently a copy of that letter in McDonald's papers, which we got to see. And they talked about this in Inside the League. The point is, uh, the Reagan years in America, the Maggie Thatcher years in Britain, where she'd had – you know, like the cavalry sent out against striking coal miners to trample them in the streets. Recluse, you know more about this than I do. The punk rockers, they hated Maggie. And the punk rockers here in the United States had no end of bad things to say about Reagan because they saw it as these were the most openly pro-fasci governments that we had, at least in the post-war era, maybe ever. And this was... The new right's best foot forward. And um, yeah, this this fascist streak uh, is pretty wide going down the back of the new right and conservatism. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But so anyway, this is the golden years for Wackle, and it's the golden age coming out party for the new right. And throughout this series, I've learned so much, first of all. Second of all, I'm thinking a lot about how much this so-called new right has been this constant thread in the whole series. And I've learned a lot about the conservative movement in the United States in doing research for it. And we've been talking about them every episode. We've also been talking about the Unification Church the whole time. And in a way that I never realized before – I get it that they're part of they're the they're two sides of the same coin. Unification Church and the Buckley Network and YAF and the CNP. It's it's crazy. It's not they're not visiting. They live in the same house. Okay. Um and I get that like never before. Um and domestically, you know, it's this religious JBS type paranoia about the enemy within and and uh and in foreign policy, it's kind of this neoconservative, neoliberal um, sort of policy that, that they've gotten. Um, and it's not that Dwight Eisenhower was actually a communist. It's that he was pro-desegregation, you know, and he was pro-New Deal type stuff. That This is the kind of agenda that these guys have had since the beginning. I mean one of the things that John Birch Society had early in its, in its time was in this impeach Earl Warren you know, movement, and it had to do with desegregating the schools because of the Supreme Court. Um, and I've wondered, it's so bad for our social fabric and our unity as a country and the economic power of the middle classes and the poor – 
it's been so harmful to all that. And it's like, what, what do you gain from taking out the social safety net and, you know, being anti-woman and anti-black, you know? And, and the thing I come up with is that the goal of the conservative movement the whole time, and I don't know if I'm right about this, but it's the only one that makes sense to me. It's to Weimarize the country, to to just like beat it down and uh, get rid of its education and its opportunities and its economic security so that when some demagogue Hitler type comes along with a messianic message, <coughs> 2015, <coughs> uh, that they'll bite. And I think that's what happened. Uh, you know, I, and I want to be real careful. I, I don't want to throw regular people who call themselves conservatives under the bus here because they're not driving the bus. And John Brisson, for instance, you're here on the call. I don't intend any uh, disrespect towards you or any of your listeners, since the odds are that uh, this episode will wind up on we've read the documents like other ones have that you're on. Uh, what I'm talking about are the elites, you know, the propagandists, the opinion makers, the CNP types, the family types who kind of own this definition of, of conservatism. But that fascist streak is there, man. And it's really interesting that we're able to examine this stuff now. And there's a lot of people that identify like you do, John, as conservative Christian, you know, that are really taking a hard Look at how much um, they've been sold a bill of goods in the 20th century. Uh, I would add Dr. Future to this. If you read his Two Gospels and Two Masters book, I think, John, you had him on your show. That's a guy who's really trying to accomplish what I used to call the, the Jesus rescue mission, you know, where like the real Jesus has been like stuffed into a closet with duct tape over his mouth. And these false prophets have this roid rage rambo and randroid jesus out there claiming to speak for christianity and somebody's got to go spring him out i i never thought that the devil's greatest trick is making you think he doesn't exist i think the devil's a malignant narcissist so being ignored is probably like not what <laughs> not on the menu uh the devil's greatest trick isn't making you think he doesn't exist it's strapping on preacher drag and convincing you he's doing the Lord's work. And Frank Buckman, who we talked about in our MRA podcast, called it the God-directed life. And Moon reduced it to a mere word, just Godism, whereby an ancient world faith tradition is reduced to just another throwaway 20th century ideology, a mere ism like communism, capitalism, fascism, whatever. Uh, so, so just this, this erosion of the actual principles that you're supposed to be adhering to is not just religious, but on the political side. Last year, a very successful uh, Republican strategist named Stuart Stevens got a lot of people elected in a 40-year career. And he published a book last year, last fall, called uh, It Was All a Lie. <laughs> and just disavowing the party that he worked for for all those years and basically owning up to his own mistakes, which that's not common to find people willing to just say, yeah, my bad. But he's the guy that did it. 
Then there's a political a Politico interview he gave last year, if you want the cliff notes. And the name of the article is, He's Destroyed Conservatism. And they're talking about you-know-who. Uh, and he said the GOP that he'd worked so hard for all those years, that it's basically devolved into a machine to just beat Democrats. Less and less about an actual set of principles. And now it's just straight power-seeking and owning the libs for its own sake now. Long way from you know, big C conservatism. And if on a political angle and a religious angle, you've kind of eroded the actual desire to adhere to some kind of principles, whether it's the gospel or the Sharon statement, whatever, you know, the old saying is if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. And, uh, but this was in the DNA. I want to read you a quote from Hunter S. Thompson, who was one of several people who were contemporary critics of things like the Young Americans for Freedom and the John Birch Society, and for that matter, the Unification Church when it really had its coming out party in the 70s. So he was at the, uh, the event when Barry Goldwater got the nom to be the Republican candidate in 64. Quote, then it came to me, yes, in 1964 at the Goldwater Convention in San Francisco, when poor Barry unloaded that fateful line about extremism in the, in the defense of liberty is no vice, etc. I was on the floor of the Cow Palace when he laid that one on the crowd. And I remember feeling genuinely frightened at the violent reaction it provoked. The Goldwater delegates had went completely amuck for 15 or 20 minutes. He hadn't even finished the sentence before they were on their feet, cheering wildly. Then, as the human thunder kept building, they mounted their metal chairs and began howling, shaking their fists at Huntley and Brinkley up in the NBC booth, and finally began picking those chairs up with both hands and bashing them against other chairs that the delegates were still standing on. When Goldwater made his acceptance speech, he said, he admitted to, quote, actually feeling afraid because I was the only person not clapping and shouting. And I was thinking, God damn you Nazi bastards, I really hope you win it. Because letting your kind of human garbage flood the system is about the only way to really clean it out. Another four years of Ike would have brought on a national collapse, but one year of Goldwater would have produced a revolution. So there's a guy that was present when, you know, in the ascendancy of the people that would later become like the council for national policy. So there's my rant about, we've been talking about Republicans. We've been talking about conservatism. We've been talking about what the new rights shadow foreign policy apparatus that grew up with American involvement from the new right since the late fifties, Marvin Liebman, William Buckley, all these guys that were there in 1958, they're not remembered for being the architects of Wackel from the American side. They're remembered as these heroes and godfathers of the conservative movement in the United States. But on the foreign policy end, this is who they were hanging out with. And if you tell me who you chill with, I'll tell you who you are. And these guys chilled with Nazis the whole freaking time. And by the 80s, when they got the White House— and they got the CMP. Wackle, they also got. And they had American leadership. Uh, and, 
that was John Singlaub's U.S. Council for World Freedom. And Wackel became the Council for National Policies, like foreign policy organ, along with other groups. There's never just one Moss you were talking about is victims of communism, like the Wackel Network of, of America, the survival of it. It's like, yeah, it's probably a piece of it, but there's other pieces, right? It's never just one thing. So you've got the U.S. Council for World Freedom that in the last episode we're talking about, you know, they're, they're running stuff in Afghanistan and Mozambique and, and whatever. The Committee for Inter-American Security, which Don Diligent was talking about a little while ago, that's like a sub-wackle Council for National Policy working group that's specifically dedicated to Latin America. But they're all the same guys, right? Um, yeah. So anyway, Wackel, our series kind of ends around 1990 when it, it changes its name to the World League for Freedom and Democracy. And they kind of ran out of steam after the Cold War was officially over. And ironically, the liberation of mainland China, the whole reason for the whole damn thing in the first place Never did happen. Sorry, Kuching Kang. <laughs> uh, it's the whole thing. It was the whole thing, the whole reason for the whole thing. And that's the thing that never happened. They tried to do like a color revolution in China, Tiananmen Square, you know, but it didn't take. Um, the hand of uh, real power got what it wanted from Wackel, you know, and then it kind of retreated from the glove and it kind of went back to being APACL in a lot of ways. Um, they even counted coup though. They got to have a world league for freedom and democracy conference in Moscow in the early nineties in which they start to really court the previously underground Russian conservative nationalist types like Vladimir Zhirinovsky is a name you don't hear very often anymore. Your proto Dugans. And the relationship between American far-right people like David Dukes of the world and the ultra-traditionalists begin to really start networking with Russian nationalists. And, yeah, I'm a big-time Russia gator for my own reasons. <laughs> I have my own backup for that, and it's another story. But the beginning of that ultra-conservative transatlantic relationship, much of which – was through church and evangelical outreach. Oh, the godless commies have finally not, you know, they're no longer under the thumb of communism. So we can, we can go preach the gospel to the atheistic masses now. And so these American groups like the family, they start sending people over there. Anyway, it's not like Wackle like completely disappeared. There's one, you know, there's like a South African communist that was like, assassinated in 1993 and it was the the remnant south african wackle guys were heavily implicated in that but for the we're talking about the legacy of wackle so there's a couple things i want to talk about and one of them is the uh, the weird connections to the ufo new age psychological warfare cults that have like captured the minds of so many people including people that i know and death squads in the usa and the militia movement. Um, yeah. And, but, but first I want to say one little thing, you know, Don Diligent in the previous episode was talking about this code word thing, friends of Mozambique, friends of Vietnam and Rhodesia and how it sounded like kind of like a code word. Um, 
Well, there's another code word or set of code words that we've kind of gone over in the in the Tecos episode. It was like hawks, owls, condors, and various birds of prey as like the mascots of these death squads or networks or secret societies. But there's another bird whose name comes up so many times in the Wackle context, and that is the phoenix. And I'll just run off a few of these like lightning round. You got an Operation Phoenix. You got the Phoenix Commandos, which were Argentine uh, guys helping alongside the fiancés of death and the cocaine coup. You got Phoenix, Arizona, where John Singlaub turns 100 this year, and which was the headquarters of the USCWF. Uh, you, that's also the name of the Ultra Libertarian Phoenix Foundation, which pioneered the concept of like ultra libertarian seasteading. Uh, they f- sought unsuccessfully to get their own island by means of various like uh, failed coups, including an attempted coup in Acabo in the 1970s, headed up by none other than Mitch Werbel. It's the name of Phoenix Associates, the Colorado-based company that worked with the John Birch Society to finance John Singlaub's expedition to uh, get his cut of the Golden Lily treasure. And then finally, there's the Phoenix Journals, kind of like a successor to the American Sunbeam newspaper, published under the name of Commander Giorgio Series Hatton, whose title is, quote, Commander-in-Chief Earth Project Transition Pleiades Sector Flight Command Intergalactic Federation Fleet Ashtar Command Earth Representative to the Cosmic Council and Intergalactic Federation Council on Earth Transition. End quote. Uh, I'll talk about that in a minute. And then, of course, you got Bruce Jones talking about him in the uh, Inside the League book. He's running a private intel service in northern Costa Rica, and the quote they get from him is, we're compiling a list of all the communists in northern Costa Rica in case we ever have to do an Operation Phoenix here. Uh Hey, There's Pete, one thing. Yeah, can I man, throw in one more Phoenix? This is mm-hmm. coming. This is coming way out of left field, but I got to get it out here. Good. So I'm one of the infamous, you know, mass marriage wedding people, right? Yeah. So yeah. you know, Moon chooses my wife. You know, we get married in Madison Square Garden, 1982, and. And, and part of the whole protocol that you go through at this event is that you then have a an official photo taken after the ceremony. Everybody does it. So, I mean, it's a huge line. It's, it's staged because, I mean, there's what? There's 2,000 couples. So, anyway, the point is, is that when you, when you stand in front of, of this backdrop, for this photo, you know, I've got my tuxedo on. She had her wedding dress. Okay. So there's a phoenix on the backdrop. Jeez. So I don't know what you want to make out of that, but I'm just putting it in there. It's a okay. popular bird amongst the wackle set. We'll just put it that way. Okay. Yeah. But there, there's... There's one thing that the Wackle and ASC and CMP network people were involved in that's an important and, and not exactly intuitive part of their legacy. Uh, I just just a couple months 
it, back in November, a book came out by Philip and Paul Collins called Invoking the Beyond, the Kantian rift mythologized menaces and the quest for the new man. Recluse, I really hope you reach out to these people and get them on your show. They're like made for the farm, man. But the book is about modern mythmakers, the singularity, neo-paganism, Christian identity, the UFO religion, which it is. It's a religion, in my opinion. And I just discovered this book last month, and I got the Kindle version immediately. It's like a thousand-page book, and I didn't have the scratch to get the real one. But one day – anyway – this book is brand new, and it's got some of the clearest links between the Wackle Network and the New Age and the UFO religion and the Council for National Policy that I've ever come across. And it's like really encouraging to see this reckoning happen. Like I was talking a minute ago about people coming to grips with how they've been had, you know. So these guys are upfront and proud about being uh, Christians, and they're unpacking. Some of the various red and blue and purple pills that they and their contemporaries have been swallowing and being fed to over the years. Um, so in the book, there's this talk about some New Age sect that John Brisson you brought up before called the Church Universal and Triumphant. And this is like another one of these critters crawling out of that theosophy cauldron, all that St. Germain Ascended Master bullshit, the I Am movement and all the blah, blah, blah. I, I like I've never been more convinced, man, like theosophy is just like one of the worst things to happen to the human race. I, I really I've never been more sure of that. But anyway, uh, Elizabeth Clare Prophet was the leader of this and they would do like these. I, I agree. Keith. just want to say that I agree with you 100 percent about theosophy. So 100 percent. Bunch of bullshit. But anyway, uh, so, so Elizabeth Clare Prophet. Back in the day, she'd be preaching about how Noah had the pure blood and the Nephilim aliens had the bad blood and both of the bloodlines survived the flood. And this is like a really bad articulation I'm giving of something they call the Nephilim doctrine. And I met people who think there might be something to this, and it gives me the fucking creeps. Okay, but you can see how this converges with some like Eric Von Daniken, ancient astronaut stuff. But Prophet would talk about how the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission and the whole New World Order were controlled by the Nephilim. And this is like this is like some old school QAnon shit, man. You know, and it like winds right up with the whole idea of like the serpent seed of Cain and Noah having been genetically pure and untouched by alien DNA. And it like just flows right into this uh the twin seed doctrine of like the the Christian identity people, you know, it's like white people are the real chosen ones and, you know, all that stuff that we talked about, which is like the religion of the militia people, you know. But in the book, they also talk about this cut, <laughs> Church Universal and Triumphant is cut is the acronym. Uh, one of their leaders named Martin Lassiter who used to be the editor of the APACL Asia Bulletin. And some of these cut members were also involved in the Committee for a Free Afghanistan, which was part of the Wackle Rollback Rambo Coalition Network that we were talking about. One of these cut ministers, Gene Vossler, was an advisor to Daniel Graham 
and the High Frontier group pushing Star Wars in the 80s. And in like the late 80s, Elizabeth Clare Prophet kind of got in trouble. Uh, she's the New Age prophetess, and she's convincing all these crystal-hugging hippies to build like fallout shelters and go full prepper in anticipation of a nuclear war that didn't happen, which is real interesting because one of her church's ministers is involved in High Frontiers, Star Wars. And that's just real interesting to me because I was, a, I was a kid at the time. I remember fighting with my parents and losing because I wanted to watch the day after movie. Do you guys remember the day after? I'm like me, maybe me and Don. Everybody else is younger than us. But there's a movie about like a nuclear holocaust called The Day After, and it was it was on TV. And it was like the opening scene of Terminator 2 where everybody gets like torched, but it's like the whole movie. And – you know, back then we weren't all as desensitized to shit like that. So it's like my parents, nothing like that had ever been on TV. They're like, you got to go to bed. You can't watch this. But you had Carl Sagan pumping up this nuclear winter thing. And you had, it was another movie called Testament that was about people that survived the blast and died from the fallout later. There was a lot of like nuclear scaremongering going on in the 80s. And then you see this connection between a group like High Frontiers pushing for SDI working hand-in-hand with this new-age cult that's engaging in that very same scaremongering. And you, it makes me wonder, like, maybe all that propaganda was intended to help create public support for, like, this literal magic bullet that would make sure the missiles never got here. It, it's, just a, it's just a notion, but I couldn't believe that when I read this book. But um, finally, about the Wacko legacy, uh, we talked in the last two episodes – and we talked in this episode a lot about this committee for inter-American security and how it was part of this U.S. Wackle Network for Latin America. And uh, Larry Pratt is part of that group, like Don was talking about, right? So Larry Pratt, his career was just getting started in the 80s, and like it, he's still around. In fact, if you look up in 2018, that Sasha Baron Cohen guy, you know, the Borat – uh, Ali G, he like punked Larry Pratt on his show, Who Is America? This little segment called Kindergartians, where he's like trying to convince Larry Pratt, like, we should arm kindergartners. And Larry Pratt's like, I think that's a great idea. Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, uh, how he really comes into the postscript to Wackle from my standpoint is, is uh, his helping foster the Patriot militia movement in the United States. So, Don, you talked about the conservative caucus being ubiquitous in these studies, right? So Howard Phillips, leader in the conservative caucus, member of the U.S. WACL, member of the CMP, along with Larry Pratt, and gun owners of America, which was described as being eight lanes to the right of the National Rifle Association and the stuff that I read. Um, they form the U.S. Taxpayers Party. Later renamed the U.S. Con- or the Constitution Party in like 1988, and Howard Phillips uh, ran for president under the U.S. Taxpayers Party banner in '92. And in fact, his VP was Albion Knight Jr., the guy, the Episcopalian traditionalist I talked about last time. That was just going to be his VP. So in that same year, crazy thing happens, and it's called the Ruby Ridge Incident. And this is where Randy Weaver and Randy Weaver and his family came under siege by the feds due to some firearms charges. 
And Weaver was a, a Christian identity believer himself, and he'd been to some Aryan Nations meetings, and it doesn't really matter. Uh, but it's probably important to point that out. But then the, the feds killed his son and his wife and his dog, and the rest surrendered and became like martyrs for the for the cause. And Bo Greitz, who you mentioned earlier, John, he volunteered himself to be a, a mediator to negotiate the surrender. Bit of a Christian identity guy himself, uh, Bo Greitz, decorated combat veteran, and apparently was the inspiration for the Rambo, not the Moonbo character in the movies. But the actual Rambo, and he was running for president that year in Willis Cardo's populist party. And get this, he was endorsed for president from the Pleiades by Commander Georgios Hatton and his Christian identitarians from outer space Phoenix journals. Apparently, they even met with his representative at some diner in Las Vegas. Weird, weird, weird. Okay. But anyway, Ruby Ridge happened in August of 92, and two months later in October, there's this big powwow in Estes Park, Colorado, called by Christian identity preacher Pete Peters. And it's attended by about 160 right-wing dudes, all sorts of them from Christian identity guys to neo-Nazis to tax protesters to dominionists and Christian – excuse me – deconstructionists, okay? Not reconstructionists, Christian deconstructionists. Thank you. Uh, Larry Pratt is one of the speakers, and he's like taking liberties with scripture and stuff to justify the arming of patriot militia groups at this meeting. So there's an important article you can look up on the Wayback Machine because it's off the normal web, and it's called From Mountain Shadows to Estes Park, and it's by David Lethbridge. And it illustrates this important linkage between the old Wackle Network and the post-Cold War militia movement, and it's highly recommended. Uh, I understand, Recluse, you recently interviewed James Scaminacci. I don't know if I said that right, but uh, his work on academia about uh, fourth-generation warfare, that was the inspiration for the podcast we did last year, right? And so this post-Cold War Wackle alumni stuff feeds right into his thesis, and so many of the people that he's talking about in his writings are the same people that are in the Wackle network in the 80s. Um, it feeds right into it. Uh, so after the Berlin Wall comes down, a lot of these guys, they turn their guns, rhetorical and otherwise, on none, nothing less than the USA itself and its system of government, using the same political warfare strategies they developed to win the Cold War Abroad, you know, on the American system of government at home, going for hearts and minds to destabilize the U.S. system of government to get it small enough so that it could either be drowned in a bathtub, like Grover Norquist said, or gunned down Operation Phoenix style by domestic death squads. And that's the reason for the title, uh, Mountain Shadows to Estes Park. The Mountain Shadows refers to the conference that kicked off Singlab's um, U.S. Council for World Freedom effort in Phoenix in 1981, and that's the one I talked about last episode where he gives like this full-throated endorsement of like terror- terrorism and death squads and black propaganda and psychological warfare to be used abroad. Estes Park is the place where they had the conference in 92 in Colorado, and that's where they take all the stuff that Singlob was talking about in Mountain Shadows in 1981 and talk about how to bring it home in 1992 and beyond.
Hey, Keith, can I interject with something? Sure. This will be this will be quick. It, it's another uh, Mooney an antidote. So I joined I joined the Unification Church, the Moonies, in '78. And then six months later, I joined the national fundraising team, which was the the network that was supplying the major funds coming out of us foot soldier moonies throughout the 70s uh, into the 80s. So when you join the national fundraising team network, you had to go to a one week indoctrination workshop to prepare you for what we'll call the more intensified uh, work detail that you would be required to to maintain as your standard in life, so forth and so on. So that week indoctrination, that was at Estes Park. Mm. Wow. So how, how about that for a, another synchronicity here? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's not synchronicity. It's all in-network. So let, let, let me quote from, the, from this article, okay? Uh, in 1990, quote, Pratt wrote the blueprint for how these well-armed local militias might operate. It's a book called Armed People Victorious. And the book was based on the experience of the evangelical Christian militias that General Singlov helped arm and train in the Philippines and the death squad militias of Guatemala armed by the Christian right in the U.S., that the Wackle and related organizations had helped to establish. It was very clear what Pratt had in mind. After glorifying and praising the effectiveness of these vigilante murderers, he then compares them to the people's militia operating during the American Revolutionary War. Pratt writes, while the United States has forgotten its successes in this area, other countries have rediscovered them. It is time that the United States return to reliance on an armed people. There's no acceptable alternative. So those are the things I wanted to say about, you know, the Wackle legacy. And I just have some final thoughts. I, I just want to say I've, I'm just like so grateful to have done this series with you guys. I don't do podcasts until the last year, apparently. And, and Recluse, I've been one of your biggest fans for a long time. And um, getting to like collaborate with you and help you along and give you tips and ideas um, and documents and getting to be your research assistant has been like a real highlight of my life for the last couple of years and especially like this last year um i want to thank john brisson you've done the really hard work of looking into the council for national policy and the, and the secret right and i know it hasn't been easy for somebody of your background to to you know to take a, a hard look at these subjects coming from that background you know um and and moss definitely deserves some gratitude i mean not only doing some of the most up-to-date work on the OUN and the ABN, but like you've also helped um, doing the editing of these episodes and like putting up with my bad jokes and stuff and, and listening back to them and everything. It's super cool. But I really I, want to... I, I think you've really carried this series on your shoulders. Well, only for about five more minutes and then I'm going to play D&D &D with my kids. Ha ha. I really want to thank you, Don Diligent. You really brought uh, so much knowledge and, and, and new stuff about the Unification Church that I can really confidently say 
just doesn't exist in any book or any article, at least not yet. And I want your listeners out there to know that if they followed what Don Diligent has said in this series, they know more about the relationship between the Unification Church and the actual American deep state than most people do. I mean, you're like a walking encyclopedia on these things, and and you've actually had the stones to speak out on these issues coming from your background as the farm's resident ex-cultist. And I just want to thank you for everything, uh, Don. Hey, and right back last, at you, Keith. Yeah, man. The last thing I want to say before we end this series, well, there's two things. KeithAllenDennis.Bandcamp.com. Okay. The last thing I want to say is just remember this. There's nobody out there that is smart enough or well-read enough or discerning enough or wise enough not to fall for some bullshit propaganda except for us. Just, just the five of us. We're the onlyest, most specialist ones in the whole wide world. So it's nice knowing you all. <laughs> yeah, and I only had to pay 36 years of dues to get it to here. Yeah. 36 years as a dedicated Mooney. Not so bad, right? Uh, Not so bad. Yeah. I only had to give up a couple of weeks, but they were uh, in uh, a jail in uh, Florida with Aryan Brotherhood folks. That wasn't very fun. Ah. Uh. All right. Um, well, this has been absolutely amazing. And um, it's been a experience putting this series together for myself. It is uh, certainly the most ambitious thing that I've uh, attempted to do in multimedia fronts up to this point. And uh, hopefully you guys out there have enjoyed it. We're going to try something similar along these lines going into 2021 in the UFO series. Keith has already given you guys a bit of a preview of that, but uh he would be back with me on that. So will Don, uh, Erica Lukes, and maybe some other special guests will be joining us. Probably Brisson, too. I know Brisson's got some stuff on UFOs I'm sure he would love to share. So that is going to be really awesome. Um, and, yeah, Moss, Moss, you need to start learning about the Temple of Satan so that you can um, guest host an episode with the one guy who's excellent book on it online and um keith will hopefully also be brushing up in the LaRoche organization so he can do a guest spot on that as well um that'll be fabulous i want to do a music one let's do a music one and talk about cool stuff instead of like evil weirdos all right we although do i love that i love the evil weirdos but yeah well we're doing the music one here on your uh, your uh your album here soon anyways so <laughs> we've got that at least to look forward to before uh, we get into the ufo stuff all right. Well, I think on that note, we will finally close this thing out um, with its, what, 20 hours of running time or something. Uh, this is a historic broadcast. I hope all you guys who have stuck around for it appreciate that. Um, and do please consider the legacy of Wackle and the legacy that it has on this country, as we were, unfortunately, one of the principal sponsors of it by the 1980s, if not um, before. And um, that legacy will continue to weigh uh, both on us here domestically and on the millions of people who were affected by Wackle abroad for some time, sadly. And that's uh, something that we all need to come to terms with. Well, on that note, I say to you all, good night and good luck.